he has no awareness of what's happened. That's in the what house. I'm exactly. talking about. He's yeah. doing it without any context. Yeah, exactly. Which is arguably worse yeah. because he has no idea why she's clearly struggling yeah. <laughs> in the pool. <laughs> there are three people in this fucking house who have knives and guns and yeah. mean them harm. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Just because he doesn't know you, the Manson. You don't need to know who the Mansons are to know. Look, look. <laughs> if, if somebody broke into my fucking house and I was just like, oh my god, those are the acolytes, aren't they? I would have to fucking know their backstory or some shit like that and be like, honey, no. the Mansons are here! <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the new Quentin Tarantino film, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Teekman. Hello there, everyone, and welcome in to episode 198 of Film Tank. As always, Alex Teekman here with you, along with my usual co-host, Nick Cheney. Hey! <laughs> Toussaint Egan. Hey! Hey! Okay. Hey. Hey. Okay. We're we're really just, you know, running out of fun things to do, so mm. it's just the, the standard. Besides game. this podcast, which is always fun. Should we maybe we should just quit before episode two hundred. Wow. You know what? I've always thought about that. You know, I, I always always thought about that. I always thought I mean, about that. As soon as we started this podcast, one ninety nine is it. Years ago I thought like, you know what? One ninety nine, that's a good number to end off. Mind? Kind of like kind of like Quentin Tarantino ended in ten films. Mm. He said he was stopping after eight, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. He's got the Steven Soderbergh syndrome. I, I actually meant well two from now. First of all, is Kill Bill one movie or two? It's one movie. Who cares? According to Quentin Tarantino, it's one movie. It's fine. But he also says that he was in no way part of why Uma Thurman was hurt on set. So, can we believe everything Ooh. the man says? I don't think so. <laughs> oh shit. Oh man, yeah. I mean, at least he, uh, at least he's backed away from the Harvey Weinstein thing. So he could have, he could have, could have gone out there for his buddy. Who was it? Was it Tarantino or was it? I think it was Ben Affleck, who said, as if he thought this would make him look better. uh, (laughs) When questioned about the, I think it was Affleck. When questioned about the Weinstein thing, oh no, he said, (laughs) which first of all. Who better to give their opinion on Harvey Weinstein uh, than Ben Affleck? Uh, but he said something like, yeah, you know, one time I pulled him aside and I said, Harvey, you got to fucking cut this shit out, man. Is if he's talking to a toddler. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, okay let's do a play-by-play here. Let's do a play so you, so, so you knew, you knew and you were actively complicit. And you this. were, well, I was going to say you knew, before we get to that, right. I was going to say you knew... You were apparently, according to you, cognizant of 
how atrociously that behavior the severity is, of that behavior you also tried to get him to stop on his own accord which putting aside the moral implications of just going to the source rather than to right. an actual right. judge or an executioner um but then he didn't stop so <laughs> so for you to admit that you one time pulled him aside at a party and said hey man that's not fucking cool that no, makes you look worse yeah it's like seth MacFarlane. you should have just lied and been like who? Heart? What? Who? Seth MacFarlane did something somewhat similar. Well, he's like he the whole Kevin Spacey it. thing, where he's always clearly known about that. Yeah. Or if not known, he's known enough to make jokes about it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And been like, well, I mean, nobody was doing anything about it, so I was at least making fun of it. Fuck mm-hmm. off. Yes, you and your talking dog from Boston were able <laughs> to truly hone in you, on you, the you, justice You brought that this been whole served. thing down, okay? Yes. Nobody talks about that dog enough. Oh, man. Once upon a time in TV land, am I right? Yep. Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, and good night. <laughs> and good luck. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to the film we're talking about, which is the ninth film in the Quentin Tarantino pantheon, and that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. That's great. I was waiting on bated breath for that, and I'm glad that you totally delivered. Thank you, Nick. That ellipsis matters. It does. Oh, fuck you. It does, sure. <laughs> that, you didn't know that that's what I was I doing? I thought you were just pausing to come up with something, and you just like had a brain fart, and then no. I was like, oh, fuck. I'm trying to give the title the gravitas ah. that it is grammatically proclaiming. Ah, it's like a Tribe Called Quest. you got to say the whole thing. So this film stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Emile Hirsch, Margaret Qualley, Timothy Oliphant, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Mike Moe, Damian Lewis, Al Pacino, uh, Luke Perry in his final role, unfortunately. So good. Yeah. <laughs> what? He was. Sure. Whoa. I mean, it was fine. Oh, you know it was what? fine. It was okay. I don't want to talk to you. Uh, also showing up here randomly are Harley Quinn Smith, ugh, uh, Maya Hawk, Uma Thurman, and uh, yep. Ethan Hawke's daughter, who just uh, also was in Stranger, Stranger Things. Things, and also Lena Dunham. <laughs> I was waiting for you to have to say her name. Oh no, I did, didn't have to. I mean, she no. she played a super replaceable role in this film. So she did. Kind of a... I appreciated it because I thought it was. I guess I'll admit this: I knew she was going to be in it, but okay. I did not read anything about. Her or mm-hmm. whatever. So bef- when I sat down in this to see it, I was like, I hope she plays the Manson girl. <laughs> and certainly Quentin Tarantino Delivered. casted yeah. her for a reason. And the I most... thought that she fit that bill. Not not irreplaceably, yeah. but uh, I don't know. I just thought. Played like, it to I, a T. Yeah. I was most surprised by the presence of uh, Dakota Fanning, honestly. I didn't recognize Is her. The, the first... red hair girl, right? Yeah, the yeah. red hair girl in the uh, the Spawn Wrench yeah. uh, house. Uh, I didn't even recognize her until like after getting out of the film. I wouldn't like... have if I didn't see Dakota Fanning in the opening titles, like uh, the name. Yeah, yeah. And once she showed up, that's when I started like kind of cocking my head to the side and going, mm-hmm. oh, "Oh, wow, that's who that is." That's. Uh, I was like, "We, oh, like because normally these days you see L." Mm-hmm. Uh, but but not Dakota. So yeah. anyway, there she was. Yeah, 
So this film uh, surrounds a faded television actor and his stunt double as they strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. That's that's a fair. Um, that's one of the better summaries. Uh, yeah. The IMDb's while excising <laughs> what is probably the the sort of central kernel of that film itself, which you know it's not. It's not that bad. Although, ironically, this movie was victim of a false Wikipedia entry for a few days leading up to its release. And I think the 24 hours of its, like, that Thursday or Friday, Mm -hmm. where a lot of people were reading the plot summary before they went and saw the movie and freaking out at the fake ending that was posted, which I'll just point out because it's been edited now. But the original, somebody had edited it, and and it's funny, I, I will say this. There's something to the fact that people believed it mm-hmm. because it went with a very Tarantino-esque thing. But essentially, the movie's the same all the way up until the night of the murders. And then that night, uh, Bruce Lee is over at Sharon Tate's house and the Manson whatever go over to Sharon Tate's house like they would have or like they would in real life. Uh, and not only do Sharon Tate and Bruce Lee fight them because Sharon Tate gets lessons from Bruce Lee, but also Cliff and Dalton hear the scuffle and go over there and like all four of them beat them up and um, people were outraged by that, which I find hilarious because this, the ending is way better than that and yet the that's not terribly far off, so if they were outraged by that, um, but we'll get into Outraged because Sharon Tate... They, fighting them and she was murdered i don't know they really just i think you know all caps outrage not like okay. not a, an actual articulate okay uh just this is sick and tarantino's an asshole mm, okay i don't know something uh <clears throat> i i will just say that um compared to that fake ending i much prefer the original ending the actual ending the original ending uh, the because, actual ending because the it is yeah the actual ending in the film uh <laughs> Because not only is it better, I'm glad that the actual ending is the actual ending. But yeah, I think it would be kind of ghoulish. It's 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 ghoulish. To, 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 yeah, and I yeah, totally see that. Th- there's a reason why um, Sharon Tate is in the role and the capacity of the film that she's in, and why she does not interact with certain characters. Yeah. I for for my money, I'll just say this: when I read people reacting to the fake Wikipedia ending, my thought was, if you are reacting like this to the fake Wikipedia ending of a movie you haven't seen, Mm -hmm. then you were technically never going to give Tarantino the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you were just Because you're so convinced in a Wikipedia (laughs) plot summary than just, you know, actual either secondhand news from someone who's seen it or right. going to see it yourself, mm-hmm. that this is what you think of Tarantino no matter the choices he makes, which we saw a lot of this week. Uh, not even of people who got the ending wrong, but people who saw the movie and st- still basically want to cancel him or want to say that he's nothing more than a foot fetishist who has <laughs> somehow risen to a... National scale you know, of filmmaking it, it's, it's of po- white dude bro. It's possible pr- that Quentin okay. Tarantino could be a serviceable filmmaker while also a foot fetishist. I don't believe that one counts as the other. You know, the other. I just really quickly, because we don't need to talk about his foot fetish, 
But here's the thing. Leading up to this movie, there were a lot of jokes made at the expense of his foot fetish. And, man, did most of those jokes come from the most liberal people I know, which I found interesting Mm. because the very same people will go to bat for sex work is real work and and I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um all sexual preferences and orientations and kinks, so long as they are consensual and uh safe, uh are valid and yet Tarantino's not allowed to like feet. Like the idea that that became a running joke between a lot of people who I thought were just fucking more mature than that. Um, yeah. It's just... Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, uh, I think we're all pretty big Tarantino fans here. So, Tucson, uh, since you are the only one who's seen the film twice mm-hmm. out of the three of us, why don't you actually start us off? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I feel like in order to sort of start my initial thoughts or my review of this film, I have to sort of prime it with... Um, back when we first heard about the news of this film coming out, mm-hmm. um, and when it was announced that it was going to be, uh, quote, Quentin Tarantino's Manson family film, I think we all remember that I was none too pleased. I was very, uh, incensed by that. Um, skeptical, skeptical and incensed, <laughs> honestly, I was, I was kind very of, incensed. I was, I was, I was really honest. At one point you said you would not see it. Right. And that yeah. was before anything had got released it, about because, it. because, because, and, and, and like we had this back and forth and talking about it. Um, and part of the reason with that is that Charles Manson was still alive at that time. And I thought that that to me <clears throat> felt, this feels really gross. Um, I, I wasn't particularly uh, like, all I knew is that it concerned the Manson murders and stuff. And with what I knew about the Manson murders and what I knew about him as a person, I'm just like, why would you do anything to bring this person back into the spotlight when after so many years we had already left him in the dustbin of obscurity to die in that prison cell that he deserved to die in. And that, that's really what, um, sort of bothered me, not just from somebody who was offended about the, the, the murders that he helped to coerce his uh, cult members in, but also of the um, about racial aspect of those. That is something that also sort of complicated my feelings uh, about that. Also, the That's fact... It's really not commented on. This I know it's not, it's not commented on at all. Yeah. But also because, and this was actually confirmed, I actually looked this up after the fact that one of the original, or at least the original um, release date for the film was going to be... August 9th, the anniversary of the actual Tate murders themselves, yeah, he, which I thought he, that was that was particularly tasteless. I confirmed that. He thought better of that. He thought better of that because he actually um, met with Sharon Tate's sister and actually had to sit down with her and actually like told her like what he was planning to do mm-hmm. with the actual story. And after that, she was much more agreeable. She actually like he told Polanski she, about it. She too. came on. She came on so. set for three three days. She gave. Mm-hmm. Um, Margot Robbie like lent her some some jewelry and some perfume and basically gave her blessing in that sort of regard and she was actually able to ask like could you please not release this on the anniversary of my sister's murder and he acquiesced he he said yeah I'm I'm gonna do that it's out of respect he did that so I can't this is all circling back to say that. Looking back on my initial reaction now and having watched the film not just once but also twice, um, just because I was curious to see it again. I had a good – I had 
a favorable enough impression that I wanted to come back and see it. Would you say you saw Twice Upon a Time in Oh, Hollywood. yes, I would. I would say Twice Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> um, I have to say that compared to my initial impression, I am surprised with – and this is where it's going to probably be very volatile given that – there's been a lot of discourse surrounding like certain historical depictions in this film. Compared to what I thought it was going to be, I am surprised with how tasteful this film is as compared to what I thought it was going to be. It is probably one of the more subdued and tasteful and, and sort of thoughtful considerations on this sort of subject matter that I would not have necessarily expected from Quentin Tarantino, but then knowing more about him and what his passions are as a filmmaker and what that era means to him and how Sharon Tate comes to exemplify that era, it only makes sense now that this film exists in the way that it does. And I think that it is a... I think it is a good film. I really enjoy it. I like the the performances on part of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, uh, respectively as Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Uh, a couple of the things that I really enjoy, like some of the, the quirks about it, Rick Dalton's modest stammer. That is really interesting to me. That's a really interesting character affect for him just being like this sort of over-the-hill actor, but all all the while it reminded me of him being maybe this quiet kid from Missouri who managed to make it out, quote, quote, completely changed his life, but he still has this sort of affect that is a sort of, it harkens back to, like, his past in that sort of way. Um, what was the name of the girl from The Leftovers who played Pussycat? Margaret Qualley in, Mar- in Mar- real life? Margaret yeah. Qualley, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's one thing that she does, like, it's when she's on Spawn Ranch with, uh, with Cliff, um, and she, like, holds out her hand, and like Cliff holds her hand and she does like that that running in place like sort of like rev up like a cartoon and she just like leads him through the actual place. And then when Tex shows up and uh, Cliff talks about how he was on a chain gang and that's going to be the last time that he ever punches a cop in the jaw. She does this thing with uh, Lena Dunham's character where she leans forward and she starts licking her tongue like that. And I'm just like, oh, that really revs your engine, huh? That's that's kind of fucked up. Um yeah, that was that was something that was one of those other affects that I, I really enjoyed. Um, there's so much that I want to talk about this film. I love the the shifting aspect ratios. I loved um, the dialogue. One of my favorite standout performances of this film, and honestly, probably one of the standout performances is um, I can't remember her name. The little girl who played. Uh, yeah, she's. Um... I forget her name, but I do know currently... Trudy something. Yeah, she's in a a sitcom on ABC, which is actually surprisingly decent, Mm -hmm. uh, called American Housewife, where she does really good work there. The uh, actress's name, or actor's name, is Julia Butters. Julia Butters, who plays uh, Trudy Fincher, who plays Marjorie Lancer, or something like that. Um, But I really just... That scene when she's just talking about how she doesn't take lunch and how she prefers to be called an actor and how, like, if she can be a little bit better, um, she wants to be. I was like, holy shit, this little girl reminds me of me when it comes to writing. Like, I totally, like, respect that. Like, Well, well, 
I don't even want to go off on a tangent no, yet because yeah. yeah. I will wait. But right. she very, I think, clearly mirrors uh, Rick Dalton's youth, where that may have been him mm-hmm. one time because they obviously had the conversation about right. the book that he's reading and how it may hit a little close to home right. in that moment. Yeah. But I, And I think that's what's ultimately sad about his... I'm so sad I haven't even read the book. You're going to be living in 15 <laughs> yeah. years. What? <laughs> Uh, I will say uh, my memory got jogged really quickly in mm-hmm. that scene, uh, and this is such a small thing that I just want to mention it before I forget about it, but um, I actually do think that that was uh, Tarantino taking a shot at the Walt Disney Company yeah. in that scene, yeah. just really randomly. He's a once-in-a-lifetime Yes, once in 50 or 100 yes. years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, when he's like, I'm reading a biography about Walt Disney, and boy, he's just a one. I'm like... Yeah, he's saying that all these other people who work there are shit. I uh, <laughs> I actually came across like a Twitter thread that was like talking about that. And I was like, what could she possibly? What biography could she possibly be talking about? When what, doesn't matter. No, 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 no. It. I, I, I think this is actually an interesting fact that I got from this mm-hmm. is that he died. I think maybe like three years prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, what could possibly be that? That that biography is like, well, this one wasn't published until this year, and this one was being worked on at that time, and other stuff like that. But then they drew the conclusion. It's like, oh, they're talking about what if this is actually a reference to a notoriously un like unpublished like Walt Disney biography that actually interviewed other people from his family, and that actually comes to, is attributable to the fact that it's bound in sort of this like black. Yeah, book. that's one thing I noticed about the book was that it didn't. It know, didn't have a even co- for the didn't have a cover the era. It yeah. didn't look like a professionally published right. book. Right. Yeah. I. It's one of those like bootleg books that has been like sort of yeah. passed around and like had like sort of a and I guess with that actress being in the industry, maybe she had some type of proximity to like be able to yeah. have that. So I know that it doesn't matter. I know that it's not material. It's but him, I thought it's, that it's, that it's was him taking a shot at Disney I for think... the hateful eight thing with the Force Awakens. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there could be that too, but I just I like knowing how like how deep of a of a cinephile like I'll say Quentin to Tarantino is credit like since he's such a meticulous, detail oriented person. Right. One of the I should say at least red not red flags, but just flags that there's something more to her comment is the fact that he didn't hand her a book that actually looks like a realistic book that yeah. she would have bought. Right. Yeah. So while I agree that in general I kind of pretty much side with you and that I think that's mostly a shot at Disney right. in, in the general sense, mm-hmm. I do actually think there is a wormhole to go through mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and dig through as yeah. to what – because it is such a weird prop. I think it could be both. Yeah. I honestly think it could yeah. be both. Like I wouldn't put it past him to do that. He wanted to do it for this reason, but he was going to make it count. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and try not to to circle the drain and repeat myself on this, and try not to be preemptive um, in sort of the appraisal of the the final scene. Can I talk about the final scene, or do you want to wait until like after we've all had our? Why well, don't? Of, yeah. Why don't we? I feel like that's going to be a big. Why like, don't we? Otherwise, because I feel like we'll talk about the final scene three times. Yeah, yeah exactly. Why don't time. we all give our thoughts? Yeah, and then we'll start by talking about the final scene. Boom. I think that it is a very good film. Um, I've been thinking about it ever since I watched it the first time, and mm-hmm. so much so that I wanted to see it a second time. And I honestly believe that my initial rating might hover a little bit higher than mm-hmm. I even thought. And I was like, so, yeah. 
So those are my initial impressions. Uh, okay. Who wants to go I'll, next? I'll, I'll take the baton here. Yeah, go for it. Um, overall, when I walked out of the theater, I was a little lower on this film than I thought I was going to be. Yeah. Um, but after an evening to collect my thoughts, I raised my rating slightly, and I have a pretty good feeling that I'll raise it another half star after I see it a second time, which I have not gotten the chance to yet. I pretty much decided that he's just the kind of director, at least for me, that I can't give a real solid opinion on one viewing mm. just because of the way his films play out. Right. Uh, so try to see it a second time this week. Didn't work out. Totally fine. Uh, at the same time, though, um, I, I was a little a little down on this walking out of the theater. I think mostly because I think from start to finish, this did not have the same kind of visceral moments that a lot of his other films have had even if there obviously is violence throughout and uh heavy dialogue throughout the film you know this film did not feature you know the amount of scenes that you would see in something like Django Unchained or Pulp Fiction or even something like um um Death Proof or something like that like there's there's a lot of slower scenes and this is a lot more calculated and at the same time i think this is a lot more about the content than about his method throughout that he's had throughout his career um but the more i thought about this film and the more i think about this film uh, i just think it's overall a really solid film even if it's not my favorite of his Uh, from start to finish he's just so fantastic at planting these characters at very specific moments when you meet them as the audience and having small little character details slowly slip out throughout the entirety of the film. And then at the end, they almost always all come back to matter in some fashion. Yeah. Or you as the viewer place importance on them, even if it's something different than the person sitting next to you. There's something there for you to take a certain way. And, I mean, in terms of writing not saying like he's the best writer of all time or anything like that, but he certainly is super comfortable in his style and what he wants to do with his projects, even if they are different, obviously from project to project. And boy, I got to tell you, uh, he has clearly not gotten over his Western thing because there's a lot of Western things happening in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that I was thinking that like it would be completely gone, but the discussions about spaghetti westerns, the old television shows that are westerns, I mean, he still clearly is in that zone. He, in that I was going to say, he chooses an era in which westerns were on the downturn, mm-hmm. which still is makes them central. fascinating. Right. You know, so, and yet it's more prevalent than any other genre in this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> for uh, understandable reasons once you've seen it and whatnot. Yeah. But. But but his fetish with westerns right now um, is is still there. It's even... his stomping ground. <laughs> That's God. pretty good. I mean, even after uh, Django and uh, Hateful Eight, Eight yeah. uh, you know, we we see this has clearly moved on from that being the main part portion of the film. But still, it's very prevalent here. Uh, another thing that that he is just fantastic at is getting everything out of his characters' performances. To, I mean, even if he he usually does hire the right actor for the role, but even when it's like maybe somebody who he wasn't his first choice necessarily or whatever, 
Like he gets exactly the performance that he wants out of these people. And it is just, it's just great because like, I can't remember one of my, I think it was a coworker was talking to me about how Brad Pitt's career has been pretty much non-existent since Inglorious Bastards. Like he's been in things, but he's not really put on like amazing performances. Like obviously yeah. people really. I mean, Ad Astra is coming out soon, so we'll see. Okay. Yeah. But... I, I know. I know. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. If you ask a normal person, they probably don't know what Ad Astra is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, even though he like had. He's kind of slid into a producing role. He has. As of late. Yeah. And he saved uh, Samuel North, uh, Northup in uh, 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't a, even know as the Canadian white guy. Didn't even know he was in that film. I haven't seen that film yet. Oh, really? Yeah, really. He is the savior. Uh, <laughs> but actually, unfortunately. Uh, anyway. So he, weirdly, he takes off his shirt in that movie too. Uh, yeah. No, but he comes back here and is reunited with Tarantino for a second time. And puts on a totally different performance than in the first film he was in, mm. but yet is I thought the best part of this film. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's just fantastic that he's getting great performances from all these different people. And I saw people were complaining about the uh, about the amount of dialogue that Margot Robbie had as, as Sharon Tate, but t- she was fantastic in this film, doing all of these little things that were just wonderful for just seeing a person that's really enjoying what they do at their job. I, and that's like, this is, this film is a love letter to people liking doing their job in the film industry because they all have things that they like about what they do. And that, that that one scene where she's in the theater, I'm sure Nick, you were eating that shit up of her sitting, looking around and seeing people's reactions. Yeah. Um, putting on her glasses to watch it. Although I did find it weird that she couldn't fucking bum over the 50 cents to go in and watch her own movie. No, but like, I, I I think (laughs) that, um, although I really quickly will say that the fact that she was, uh, not recognized, but realized for her role in beyond the Valley of the dolls is one of the most period appropriate for as much as this is a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. That was also, Tarantino at his best when it comes to just being encyclopedic in knowledge and whatnot because right. that's actually how the common person would know her, which is that they wouldn't quite place her, even though she was like a famous "quote unquote" sex spot actress. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't. Her. She was still coming into um, yeah. her ascent, and which is part of the sort of tragedy yep. of the circumstances. Of and they would situation. know that movie right. without even realizing that was her. Right, right. So, anyway. That was her most and, recent breakthrough at the time. Oh, I was just going to say, everything surrounding that part of the film, I thought was great. Uh, and one thing I will say that's a really specific detail, but something that I absolutely loved about this, and this goes to something that we, as a group, talked about before we were on the podcast, which probably makes no sense for the listeners, but talking about... Um, Our eight- best conversations happen... happen when we're not doing this. Right. Yeah. We yeah. save the worst... For this. For the podcast. Yeah, well, that's 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 inspiring. We try to reenact them, but then it never happens oh, no, the way we want to. Just terrible. Remember yeah. when we re-recorded the Mad Max Fury Road episode? That was one of the worst hey, that ideas was, we've ever had. That was hey, that was that initial episode was actually not that bad. I know. Yeah, lost and then, forever. We lost forever. And then we're like, well, why don't we just try to do it again? 
But that ever happens again, it can be like the newest Star Wars movie or whatever. It's, it's we're not never happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyways, um, we're all talking about the Irishman and the idea of because the trailer just dropped today when we're recording this episode, and the new Martin Scorsese film is obsessed with de aging and CGI, and the first trailer makes it look like it's gonna be fucking awful. And anyways, I love that this has Margot Robbie watching Sharon Tate, the actual actress, play herself. And it's not this, like, you just have to know that that's who she's playing as the audience. Like, they didn't insert her into the fucking movie and ruin that shit. Speaking of which, that is very interesting. Like, there's two points I want to come back to, but I'll, I'll circle back. Um, on what you just recently said, and I'll mm-hmm. circle back to the Sharon Tate thing because okay. that's something I want to want to talk about. Sorry, no, no, um, no, you're good. But yeah, I was like to not have Margot Robbie like sort of like interpolated into the actual footage, and to have Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate watching, watching herself. Sharon, but I think yeah, I think that's really like very poignant, very beautiful. But also the fact that this film does dabble in those sort of interpolations via having um, the great escape the, here's the thing about the great escape i love that moment and i wanted to talk about it a little bit um where you have rick dalton who his character leonardo DiCaprio, is like sort of like um spliced into this actual footage um of actual old movies and you have like the great escape and you have the episode of fbi that had burt reynolds in it that's As the crazy. young yeah he yeah, yeah that is like one of the weirdest folding upon itself i know to have current day leonardo dicaprio right uh, essentially, I'll say Photoshop for the layman. Mm. Right, right. Photoshopped in a young Burt Reynolds guest appearance in the show uh, The FBI. Right. Uh, especially when Burt Reynolds just died this year. Right. Like, I don't actually think that was intentional no. because that's way too, I think, late <laughs> yeah. in the game. Right, right. Whatnot. But what a weird mindfuck of nostalgia mm-hmm. being almost, not erased, but being kind of... Uh, circling back on itself yeah yeah where it's like hollywood is this kind of echo chamber of right. faces and places right and i i think that um so the scene with the great escape is fascinating to me for the fact that um it happens after rick has basically gotten to his whole cowboy like um like heavy Sort of, sort of suit, right? And he's like talking with like the main actor who, uh, who's James Stacy, played by Timothy Oliphant, t- t- by like uh, Timothy Oliphant, and they're just like you know talking the shit. It's like you know I almost got the role in Fourteen Fifths mm-hmm. of McCluskey and stuff. It's like yeah, I was like, but you did great. And it's like oh, I heard you. Uh, I heard a rumor that you were gonna be in The Great Escape. And like bong. And I was like, well, actually, I never even tested for it, anything mm-hmm. like that. And then it shows the footage, and I'm trying to square that. And I was like, wait a minute, I know what this is in this universe. Rick Dalton is to Steve McQueen what Eric Stoltz is to um, um, Marty McFly. Marty, like the, uh, the, uh, yeah, you know, Michael, Michael, Michael J. Fox he, he in Back to the Future. Re- he that was cast and removed. That is amazing. That's yeah. fucking great. Oh, my God. I love that shit. Uh, His response to that also is just brilliant. So subdued. So like, yeah, I didn't even test for it. It's like, don't oh, yeah. bullshit. Don't <laughs> there, bullshit. There were entire scenes. There were entire in, scenes. On a cutting room floor somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. That's amazing. Um, everything all else in the early film surrounding showing Rick Dalton and his earlier works, mm-hmm. even the opening scene with that sort of ludicrous interview where he only gets asked one question. And he's like, yeah, he just kind of follows me around and whatever. 
And I like, oh, I loved to early on, this is getting to a super small detail of the film, which is, that's a Tarantino-ism, so I guess it's fine. Yeah. But the, like, small cutaway about, yeah, I just didn't feel like driving. Nope. Actually. <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> and that was Brad Pitt narrating, right? No, Though, that was that was, Kurt, was Russell. Kurt Russell. That was Kurt I Russell. I mean, I know he nar- narrates the ending. No. Like, so, but I couldn't remember because pretty I sure wasn't was, paying attention in the beginning. Sure it was Kurt Russell. Okay. It was Kurt Russell, yeah. And then that yeah. makes sense, too. But yeah. anyway. But yeah, no, so overall, uh, I think this will actually be one of the episodes we actually do do conversations on. Do do. Other than other episodes where we say we're going to talk about things at length and then we really don't. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, I think we'll talk about a lot of things about this film. So I'm, I'm eager to get to that point and uh, also eager to hear what Nick has to say on his initial thoughts. So the Sharon before. Tate thing nope. that I and was going to talk about. Tucson before. also has something else to say. <laughs> I was going to say before. That's not me. Um, <laughs> Whatever he says, I don't agree with. I will, <laughs> let, let's slot that into the conversation regarding the ending because I feel like the conversation about Sharon Tate and the – and Margot Robbie's apparent like lack of of dialogue, I feel like, oh yeah, is is it resonates to what that ending is meant to represent, or the film as a whole is meant to represent. So let's let's pin that in and talk Absolutely. about that later. But of course, Nick, you oh. haven't given your thoughts yet, so well, I want thank you. Yeah, um, I uh, so hateful eight was a movie I loved. Okay, that's a that's a fact, okay. Jack. Um, so I was trying to somewhat downplay my excitement for this movie because as much as I enjoy Tarantino, I definitely don't always think he hits a home run, so to speak. Like, I pretty much always enjoy his movies because they're well-made in a way that nobody else is making them. Like, that's undeniable. Um, but, like, there are times when I do find him to be too indulgent, uh, I really don't care for Reservoir Dogs all that much. I do think it's fun to watch, but, you know, I could never watch it again is basically what I'm saying. Uh, so, th- recently I very much enjoyed The Hateful Eight, but what I enjoyed about that was clearly going to be absent in this movie as far as it was in no way going to be a full-on, uh, uh, shall we say, gimmick as far as uh, adhering to one genre in this case, one room, uh, amping up a small location, uh, murder mystery, just a lot of these things that I certainly eat up or whatever. So here we're going to have a much more sprawling, epic, although the final product didn't quite come out uh, with a scope as big as I thought it would be, which is maybe a reason why I liked it more than I thought. But I just saw so many ways that this movie could fail in my eyes uh, Hmm. and just kind of be too indulgent or whatever. Um I went and saw it, and yeah, this was, I thought, uh, amazing. <laughs> uh, this, I mean, I've said it a million times, but I'll say it now on the podcast, which is, you know, he called it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and for this to actually show way more of the inner workings of, and not just inner workings, but name drops of references and whatever to 50s and 60s television series um, 
uh, that's my bread and butter, uh, television from any era. Um, I've never actually seen episodes of Lancer, Mannix, or any of these because they're kind of hard to stream and yeah. I'm not going to buy a complete series of shit that I haven't seen. Well, that's not true. I do that all the time. But <laughs> I can only do it for so many shows. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but, but I've heard of these shows and I've seen these sure. actors and whatnot. So to, to see it recreated in front of my own eyes it just fucking blew me away. And for it to matter, you know what I mean? Like that's what's fascinating about this is that he didn't make a movie that because then I was also worried when I was watching it that maybe it was going to sink into that territory where it was going to be that television is bad and he needs to get back to movie making. Because technically speaking, Leonardo DiCaprio's character gives his best work in a guest spot in a long-lost Lancer episode. Mm-hmm. And so for Tarantino to acknowledge that that this it, TV and film is such a symbiotic relationship yeah. and that they feed off of each other and they share, uh, obviously, you know, crews and casts or whatever, um, and that you can't have one without the other. I just thought it was great and certainly like catnip to me. I also loved uh, something that is kind of hinted at in this film, but isn't really like hit over the head, which is the, uh, <laughs> sort of ups and downs of people's careers that they can come back just as quickly as they go down. I mean, absolutely. You've seen it countless examples here in the modern era of Hollywood, but Robert like Donnie Jr. Well, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Keanu Reeves has gone up and down multiple times. Yeah. Like it's just, um, and that's certainly something that, but I think it's certainly clear, especially in this, in the early part of this film, that this era perceived the idea that once you headed down, you were fucked. Yeah. And obviously as time has progressed, that is just not the case. No. And the sixties in, at least in my opinion, as a very uneducated historian of the Mm -hmm. televisual (laughs) arts, but from my knowledge, the sixties was truly a booming time in which so many different avenues were created and, you know, the studios still existed, but they existed on such a broad scale that you could go overseas and make an Italian Western, and as we know, Clint Eastwood did, and and truly revitalize an entire career to where you become an American icon in a way you never were. And, and, and it could go backwards or forwards, whether you did that to TV or from TV and whatnot. So... Um, this is such a fruitful period for that, uh, obviously. And so, obvious, it, it's just, I was glad that this movie got to play in that playground for a little while. Um, uh, performances across the board, I thought, were fantastic, obviously. Um, Leo, I just still think, is never going to be one of my favorite actors, but he's definitely one of the most engaging actors, and then I always want to watch what he's doing at every given moment because. He makes some weird choices that I would say, for the most part, always work. But I just, uh, I just can't quite get a read on him as an actor. Like even somebody who might give more celebrated performances, and for good reason, like a Daniel Day Lewis. I feel like I expect what Daniel Day Lewis does in a performance when I go see his performance, even if his characters are so wildly different or whatever. I expect him to get lost in the role, whatever. But Leo does this thing where he's still kind of, in my opinion, a kind of bachelor actor where he's not playing 
the biggest range um, of like this character is you know yay and this character is net whatever, but there there are these weird idiosyncratic differences between a uh, a Jordan Belfort and a uh, Rick Dalton, and obviously you put the the eras aside. I just mean in the way that, in a lot of ways, Rick Dalton is kind of a, a dude bro and, and yeah. lives in excess, and yet he's so much more of a dork in in this movie than he would be in The Wolf of Wall Street, and yet he doesn't do it with glasses or with, you know, like all the signposts and signifiers that most actors would lean on. And, and Toussaint touched on it earlier with, like, the stammer mm-hmm. and just the way he exuded, I think, a lack of self-confidence uh, in spite of the talent that he may or may not have at any given moment. He seems like he is arrested in his emotional development in that he is a perma bachelor, <laughs> even to the point of after having been married, he's still on his bullshit. Well, and I think that's actually one of the funnier jokes in the movie is that like he's yeah he's a perma bachelor, which is exactly why he would get married on vacation, basically. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. it's it doesn't count because I'm on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's get wild. And even when, which is I'm not talking about the ending itself, but the one scene. In the end, when uh, Brad Pitt's getting wheeled into the ambulance, and Brad Pitt's telling him to go, go be with your go wife, be with and he's your wife. like no, not leaving fine. his side or whatever, like that tells you all you need to know about where that marriage is going. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially considering the first night uh, at home that Lord, they have that poor woman, yeah, that poor woman. <laughs> but performances across that poor woman. <laughs> performances across the board in this movie are fantastic, and I will say that this is. Probably my favorite Brad Pitt role in such a long time. I mean, he's given phenomenal performances before, but I haven't seen something like this that he's done in at least a decade, if not much more. I, for me, I was gonna say I, I I'm willing to be. We can. This could be a total. We don't have to go like all in on this. Yeah. But trying to think about actual like legitimate fantastic Brad Pitt performances that it's probably doesn't take you that long. No, it's not a big list. That's the thing is like, even when I enjoy him in a movie like *Inglorious bastards, mm-hmm. like he's great in that. And I don't want someone else to be that role. I don't think he's stretching too hard to yeah. do that Southern drawl and fuck around on the set. He's probably giving a great performance in the tree of life. Yeah. But I, I I don't know how much that really matters yeah. in that film. Yeah. But this felt yeah. like my favorite Brad Pitt character probably ever, which is... Yeah. Well, no, no, I was going to say it felt like that, which is Rusty from Ocean's Eleven, ah. but taking it to an actual dramatic level of having this inert sense of melancholy at a life maybe somewhat mislived and trying to, shall we say continue to take in the score as his old age may or may not be fading. And I, I thought this was like such a uh, a weird funhouse mirror version of that where he's just as effortlessly cool, but he's a little slower on the draw, not physically as yeah. far. Uh, I just made karate chop mimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Thank you, Bruce Lee. Uh, well, that's another thing. Um. But uh, just as far as he's not as uh, ready to just whip out comebacks or anything, unless he feels like he is literally trapped in a corner. Um, and I think that really comes across in the Spawn Ranch sequence, where he is, throughout that entire thing, weirdly 
I would say nurturing towards uh, uh, what's Bruce Dern's character. Yeah, I forget. Is it George this or George Bill? Spawn. George yeah, Spawn. George yeah. Spawn. Yeah. Uh, like he, like that's one of the most decent things he does because any sane person could have just gotten their car and been like, "All right, I'll see right. you later." But I to, thought he was going to die in that. But scene. to follow that thread all the way to the end, just because of a guy he used to once know. I mean, yeah. they don't even make it up to seem that he was that close. It yeah. seems like, and that's uh, that's another aspect of this film that is like it seems like he's the only one who is onto their game mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, like as soon as he gets there, he's like, something's not right here. Yeah, something. Yeah. Is, <laughs> some, I smell fuckery afoot. Yeah, yeah uh, that scene's that scene's going to be in contention for best scene of the year for me. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, dude! Everything surrounding that scene, like that is like, and I think Nick, I think we were texting about this briefly after you had seen the film, but Tarantino doesn't really dabble too much in the like drawn out tension, but I felt like that scene had it for. In a long, I would say ten minutes straight period of time. I would say what we were talking about that I agree in the sense that I feel like he never does it without ending it in bloodshed, whereas here he follows it through a very interestingly muted conclusion. Now the bloodshed is for later. Yeah, I was gonna say it's for later, and also he beats up Tex, but Tex is not really involved with. He the, doesn't beat up Tex. The, he beats up some other guy. Yeah. The other guy. Yeah. But he's not involved with the suspense of just him going no. into that house. And but but he is. He's involved in the suspense because you think like the entire scene. I'm just waiting for him to be murdered, right. Right. basically. And it, it just never comes, right. which is fantastic about that scene yeah. because the suspense in every single aspect of that scene is just so great. Yeah. Even like the music cues and the sound effects when he's slowly walking through the house asking which room he's in. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, just, I'm waiting for like... I don't know, that fucking guy from Don't Breathe to jump out. <laughs> they shot they... money! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just pull a shotgun out and kill this fucking guy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All right, so great. before I pass it off, I want to end my spiel with mm. a look how far I've come speech, which is to say that I've watched a lot of movies in my lifetime, right? What? And every time I've watched a Tarantino film, I always feel like I'm behind the draw as to the things that he's referencing, and I always catch up with his references after I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not even as a, like, I go see the movie and then yeah. I go seek it out. Yeah. But, like, randomly when I watched uh, one of the, I think it was The Big Dollhouse, if not that, one of the other women in prison films starring Pam Greer. But hearing that one song sung by Pam Greer and then putting it together that that's the song that plays when Pam Greer gets out of prison and Jackie Brown and various little things like that. I'm always like, oh, that's like five years later. I'm right, like, right, that's right. where he got that, whatever. Right. This is the first time where I watched the Quentin Tarantino film and I picked up an obscure reference. It's just a poster, but still, I'm pretty proud of myself. Okay. So yeah. on the In the Spawn Ranch sequence, as I was watching that sequence, I thought that the Spawn Ranch looked somewhat familiar, which... Mm. Obviously, the Spawn Ranch in the movie, but also in real life, right. they had said was used to film movies or whatever. So it got me thinking or whatever. I never would have put this together. But when Brad Pitt goes inside of the the main house mm-hmm. to check on uh, Mr. Spawn, there is a poster for a movie called Linda and Abilene. Now, Linda and Abilene is a movie I have seen <laughs> because... Vinegar Syndrome, my favorite company, uh, their very first release, I believe, was 
the lost sex films of Herschel Gordon Lewis, which right. is the if you don't know who Herschel Gordon Lewis is, he's the who's what's called the godfather of gore. He is the first person to essentially create a gory picture mm. where you only go watch it to see people get chopped up and blood spurt everywhere and you know he was doing it in the 60s and it was crazy um but he ended up trying to make sexploitation films and he was not very good at it and that's why they were lost until uh, vinegar syndrome found them and one of them is linda and abilene which is about these two <laughs> this brother and sister who their parents are murdered and it's kind of a western but it's clearly shot on a movie ranch and so it never really quite looked like one so it was this weird surreal thing anyway their parents are murdered, and they end up having sex with each other because they realize that they're attracted to each other or whatever. Huh. So that movie was filmed on Spawn Ranch, oh. and that's where I know that from. But when I saw the poster, I was like, holy shit, I've seen that really random lost sex film from do you think the that, 1960s. Do you think that Quentin Tarantino is a patron of uh, Vinegar Syndrome? I can't imagine that he's not. Right. Um, if not, I don't even know that he's he, a patron of the film. I was going to say, I don't even know that he need to be in the sense that I'm pretty sure he's seen a good portion of what they put out, right. even before they put out. Whereas I'm like, they put it out, and I'm like, oh, I'll watch this yeah. and whatnot. Whereas like, um, it's finally accessible to people who may have common like, folk. Who common folk who have Blu-ray players instead of Betamax like players and shit like that? Like now they have the means to. I'm sure he loves what they're doing in general for preserving. So anyway, I have seen that lovely sexploitation film (laughs) that is not very good about incest between a brother and sister. Yeah, that was shot on the Spawn Ranch. There you go. It all ties together, kind of. Yeah. Let's talk about the ending. Okay. Not sex, like Salt and Pepper would say. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for that. So, Tucson, you were kind of brimming wine to mm-hmm. uh, give some thoughts about the ending. So, yeah. so why don't you start us off? Well, we'll should just we talk. Re- talk. What should we relate the events of the ending, or should we just like talk about our impressions of it? I guess we could say a little one to two, three sentences. That's fine. Of okay. Just in case someone, for some weird reason, is like adamant about not seeing it, but well, and just to give an overall recap. For anyone who hasn't seen the film or hasn't seen the film recently, mm-hmm. uh, it's a extraordinarily Quentin Tarantino ending uh, where basically the murders are about to happen, but the people from the Manson family are basically pulled aside because Rick Dalton yells at them for being worthless fucking piece of shit hippies. Yeah. They then... Redirect their sort of animosity, yes, they decide their animus that they are, towards they're going, him. They're going to still go kill everyone who lives at the Tate household. But they're going to kill them But first. they're going to kill them first. And uh, ultimately, uh, it goes terribly for the Manson family murderers right. as they are very brutally murdered uh, by everybody, uh, basically, who... And everybody gets their own kill, I think, for the most part, uh, at the uh, Rick Dalton household, yeah. including the dog Brandy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, the dog. And by the way, that's how you do uh, gruesome dog mauling. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that John Wick shit looks really bad now. <laughs> yeah, so, it does. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, that's basically what happens. Uh, and there's some good callbacks and good character details in here. And we haven't even hit on the stuff about Brad Pitt yet and his feelings towards women. So yeah. we'll get there. But go ahead, Tucson. Um, so... That was a great recap. Thank um, you. I appreciate it. My initial first reactions to um, the ending when I first saw it were that it was so comical. 
it, it was so it was so comical. It was so over the top in its viscerality that it seemed to probe or al- almost all right, all, 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 like almost tear at the at the fabric of the fourth wall. In that these 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 cult members being dispatched in such a way feels like vicarious retributive violence on part of Quentin Tarantino for the fact that these people in our history, in our real world, are attrib- are are responsible for not only the the killing of a, a a notable actress and many other innocent lives in and her unborn child and her unborn child in one of the most gruesome acts of 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 targeted mass killing of indiscriminate mass killing uh like well, at least for for the era the, the respective to that era um and also too i i'm not really up on on everything about the Manson family mm-hmm. murders but this film makes it seem like it is just a complete accident that they kill Sharon Tate. That they only go there because they knew the person who previously lived at that house. Right. And that is really, I am pretty that is, sure, that's the only reason why everything got blown up I mean, on them. Because they killed someone of high importance. Well, the, there are some scenes, well, just to sort of finish my thought, mm-hmm. that um, it's not Sorry, only, not. it's okay, it's not just because they killed Sharon Tate, but also what Sharon Tate, in effect, represents about that era in comparison to her actions in across the film versus the actions of like what we see of the Manson family and what they do in that sort of respect. Like so This is all sort of like coming back to the, the question of, whether or not Margot Robbie has been robbed of lines as a character, should she have been given more lines? And I actually read um, a Time magazine interview with uh, with Quentin Tarantino about this film, and he's like, you know, I could have honestly, if I wanted to, I could have made uh, Sharon Tate more of a central character, and that she would like be propelling the plot. And I'm just like, no, she is the plot. This is the whole thing. It's like the the entire like universe of this film orbits around the sun that is Sharon Tate. And it's all about just showing her being able to do something that in our world, she never got to do, which is just live her life, being able to just go see one of her movies, being able to just go pick up a book for her husband, being able to pick up a hitchhiker and, and drive them and, 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 give them to where they need to go and actually genuinely getting to know them and hug them and wish them well. She embodies in, in some respects the best of that era before those instincts and those sensibilities were then co-opted either by corporate interests or, or corrupted by bad actors like Manson people who basically cultivated their own sort of cult status and use the whole summer of love vibe in basically to inject themselves into 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 susceptible to, to, to molding people who are susceptible Bra. who looking who are looking honestly for an alternative to the sort of barbarity and the sort of uncertainty and the seismic cultural shifts that were going on at the time whether it be through the civil rights movement whether it be through the the escalating stakes of Vietnam whether it be uh in at least for that for 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 that time when the film was happening 
um, the recent uh, election of of Richard Nixon it was like those those things that were going on at that time. She like she embodies something that it's not a, a, a mistake that when when people talk about the 60s, they're talking about the late 60s a lot of the time. And that when they talk about the end of the 60s, they are really talking about the symbolic end as is represented by the death of Sharon Tate and about I think there was that one guy who got stabbed at a uh, Rolling Stones concert by the yeah, Hells Mer- Angels. Meredith yeah, something, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those two are kind of seen as the pinpoint of like the 60s are over. And for the fact that like Quentin Tarantino obviously loves the fucking 60s. That is when he just sort of like came of in it. I think that's around the time that he was born. It's like that's sort of like where he came of age into like that's when he was a child. That when he, when he was a child, he loves that era, and to see that era sort of like torn away, like by something that is so gruesome and so gratuitous. This is him, like so many years after the fact, like circling back to look to 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 look backward on the era that sort of made him in a lot of respects and to also have his own sort of vicarious like retribution on the people who took that era away from our nation pretty much he was born in 1963 just to point out and i think that's even more uh apropos in the sense that by the time this movie takes place mm-hmm. he was about to inherit what was good about that era right. uh if not for the death of right. it, taken by what you've described. Right, yeah. yeah. So he's literally longing for something, I think, through this film, for something he could have had and the rest of the country could have right. had, if it not be for some right. people. And that works in sort of a meta context, and then there's the actual in-universe context, which is even more complicated. I, I prefer the meta context. Hmm. I agree with that, but the in, in-universe in context, that is when it gets kind of uh, slippery, uh, given the the background of Cliff, given the sort of past sentiments expressed by Rick and Cliff um, so... regards to the mood of that era and the mood of okay. the people that they're... I, let's, okay, let's let's talk about that. Let's 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 crack that open. The... I will move on. Let's no, no, move, no, no. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not trying to move on. Right, I'm right, trying right. to say yeah. about that. Yeah, <laughs> like, this, this, is, this is your take. Like, talk about the ending on your I, terms. Uh... Well, should I talk about talk, that? Talk about what specifically you want to talk about. Right. Okay, specifically, just yeah. off that comment, there's been a lot of talk right. about uh, Cliff Booth's backstory. Right. In which we only get two things. All whispers, which is Well, I was going to say yeah. two instances, which is an actual cut to moment, mm-hmm. which is where we see the scene in which... Uh, we, uh, him and his wife are on a boat, and she's nagging him like a woman. And he's talking about got her sister a Natalie har- harpoon yeah, gun say, it, it seems aimed at her very casually, but laid across his lap. Seems awkwardly comparable to the Natalie Wood drowning. Yeah. Robert Wag, whatever. Let's put that aside for a second. That's fine. Let's just, no, I just mean because I think that is there as well. Yeah. But if we're just talking about Cliff, yeah, sure. It's an uncomfortably uh, seen absence of any actual confirmation of any. Oh no! Deed? No, it just uh, lingers. That he may or may not have done, or whatever. Uh, and then the only other instance of his that is uh, what other people say about him, who were clearly not there. 
Right. Which is that uh, he's known as someone who killed his wife and got away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are other bits to his backstory, whether, you know, he's a war veteran mm-hmm. and on the chain gang and all that other yeah. stuff or whatever. But with regards to Cliff potentially killing his wife, all I really want to say, and then I'll let anyone else speak, is that mm-hmm. people are talking about that scene in such absolutes that it's just annoying me because the movie's been out for one weekend. Mm-hmm. And there, I guess I'm just like, isn't it? more interesting as a movie if the ambiguity sits there and makes you uncomfortable? Right. Like, is it so important that you are on either side that you basically somehow saw the movie and in your head assume that he definitely killed his wife because of the very pointed, I will say, sure, pointed... Accusations. Accusation and... uh, perspective of that flashback scene certainly siding (laughs) with the mindset of a uh, annoyed husband and that flashback is even more complicated because it itself is a flashback within a flashback so I'm trying to negotiate the sort of levels of of interpretative interpretative unreality the dream is collapsing yeah yeah, and I'm I'm trying to that's one of the reasons why I went to go see it again and I still don't have a a a Definitive answer on that because I just don't think that it's as his 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 reaction at the very end. Also, I loved that scene earlier in the film because I genuinely did not know that this was a flashback when I first started. Yeah, and maybe I'm dumb for that. No, it's 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 a the way the movie is out of it. It does not announce no anytime right. it's going into a scene what that scene is doing. It's sort of signaled by the. The the line that Rick had told him before he got to the house, where he's like, "Yeah, it's like so." The guy who's the who's the who's the DP for this, or whatever. He's friends with the guy from uh, the the it is, the Green but, Hornet, but, so you know it's you know but, what that. But means. Rick is also in a a trailer. He's not gotten his makeup yet, so right. this seems like this could be present day. Yeah. I mean, at least from first viewing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that part was great. His reaction though, after yeah, I get yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I was a dick there. And so here's the thing, though. Then I'll circle back to the ending of the movie, which is that he enacts unspeakably horrible violence against, uh, I, th- I think it's important to say, all of the Manson people. People seem to think that that's the only, the woman is the only person that he uh, just, and I know that that scene lingers, but... Um, he sends the dog after Tex. Okay, but that seems more like a strategic thing. And then uh, he throws the can at the woman's nose who is lunging yeah, at him. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the the gratuitous part comes with him slamming the yeah. one woman's head into the... And so maybe He's I'm also a, high on acid. That is true as well. Okay. Uh, well, that's not, not true. That is not not true, but... That's not an excuse for anything. Well, I don't think he was making a moral excuse. No, I'm so not making much a moral excuse. A... I'm saying that like his inhibitions probably are not yeah. as, as no. in proportion as they would yeah. be had he not been like high out of his fucking mind. Yeah. Because mostly throughout the entire movie, he's extremely cool. Yeah. So if anything, I would think the acid actually does make sense as to at least partially allowing uh, this... Not mistake, but just this thing to unfold the way it does. He's also been stabbed too, so like there's the sort of adrenaline. 
the, he stabbed toward yeah, the end. Yeah, he stabbed towards the end, and then he, he before, smashes. Before he smashes her head in. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, what yeah. a motherfucker. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. What, what? You know, I make that joke, but technically speaking, she is the Manson acolyte who was going to kill a bunch of people. But he, they he's didn't, not aware of they that. They didn't. They he's weren't not aware of that. They weren't there. But what they he's are. the but, fucking Manson's but, but guess, but guess what? But, but guess what? He is aware that there she are She was at Live Aid. I just watched the last hour of that. There, are, there are three yeah. people in this fucking house who have knives and guns and yeah. mean them harm. Yeah. That's what I was to say. You just because he doesn't know you, the Manson. You don't need to know who the Mansons are to know. Look, look. <laughs> if, if somebody broke into my fucking house and I was just like, oh my god, those are the acolytes, aren't they? I would have to fucking know their backstory or some shit like that and be like, honey, no. the Mansons are here! <laughs> exactly. It's like, you, you just know that they're fucking... The yeah. fucking home invaders, um, and it's time to kick their fucking ass. No, no, wait a minute. <laughs> I think I, I I will say I'm I'm not disagreeing with you because 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 I you are right. But I will say as soon as he remembers who they are, yeah. I think he discredits them a bit. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I mean yeah. for sure. I'm saying you were riding on a horsey. There's yeah. a. <laughs> And it's like, I'm the devil, I'm here to do the devil's business. And it's like, nah, it was stupider than that. It was like Rex or some shit. And that was an actual line that that person said. And it's like, that's another extra fuck you to that, that the memory of that, that I, caricature. No, I, I, I'm joking, but I genuinely do agree that there's an uncomfortable reality present in that scene in which you can't quite tell how much he's enjoying it versus how much he's doing it out of survival instinct. Mm-hmm. And personally, I don't think that there is a crystal clear interpretation that leans to one side or the other. Yeah. No, I um, I will say I, I think it does pick a lane a bit on him as a character in terms of his his actual, like, to his bones feelings about women. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that that, that, that is, like... Definitively saying that I threw Bruce Lee into a car for being a friendly competition. I mean, I don't know. I just thought he has a repressed. Okay. He goes out of his way not to have sex with a minor. I mean,. I don't know. I just, I just think this character is way more complex. I, 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 than... I, I I'm, 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 I'm in agreement with you, okay. Nick. And I actually thought he was the best part of the film. And I actually think that Brad Pitt is delivering a great performance. Um, my reading of the entire situation is, I think he's a more interesting character if he does hate women. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't, and I, I don't necessarily think that's a good or a bad thing. But I think. It makes it it makes him appear like he does have more personality than he is showing throughout the entirety of the film, even if it is a bad thing. And also, too, I mean, the the idea of of, of that just slipping out there at the end when yes, he is in a situation where this person was trying to kill him, so he can do what, but. Well, here, here's what I'll say. He gets a little extra. Okay, here's way. what I'll say really quickly. And I don't even know that I subscribe to this ending or this interpretation, interpretation of the ending. But it is something that flashed up in my mind for a second as a, am I allowed to say it out loud? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to. Okay. Is there a reality in which Brad Pitt did not kill his wife? Sure. In this movie. Like, yeah. there was some weird tragic accident, right, freak right. accident. Maybe he was careless or something like that, but that he is not a stone-cold murderer who basically enacted something to make it look like an accident and mm-hmm. then got away with it. Sure, is there, sure. And if that is true, 
then could he have essentially been sidelined from that moment on as a stunt uh, person absolutely because of the rumors uh-huh. uh, and obviously his relation to I think Rick kept him relevant in some respect mm-hmm. uh, against the grain and obviously against the there's a reason why he's putting up with all this like driving him around yeah. shit yeah uh, and so the point is that if that's the case then when we get to the ending and he's high out of his mind is there any chance that a part of him has been told for the last you know years or whatever. Oh, happened. you're a killer. And so now he's like so far gone mentally because I would say of the drugs and because of this fucked up situation that he's just living the role that he has been prescribed, which is something that a lot of characters are kind of doing in this movie. I mean, I... All I'm asking is that is there a possibility that yeah. that's an interpretation? I think yeah. that that's a possibility that's interpretation. I don't subscribe to that interpretation, yeah. but I, I see I, I see where either. you're where, where But it's kind of you a laying it out like Schrodinger's that. I can, I can, cat thing where right, right. the fact that that like is even in existence and it's hanging there is mostly what I love about the ending and the character in general is that I don't think Brad Pitt Personally, I think maybe Tarantino maybe wrote it one way or the other, but I think the genius of Brad Pitt's performance is that I think personally he played it on a line where all of this exists at the same time. Yeah. Okay. I I, I feel like I have a different interpretation of what, they, but that's that's and that's what I mentioned when my initial thoughts. I think that is one of the great things about Tarantino is he delivers all these small character traits that any person could tease out when they are trying to have a opinion about his film. So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 there for you, but it obviously is super ambiguous about yeah. everything regarding it. I just feel like it it's it's pretty clear to me. But yeah. that's okay. okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right or necessarily wrong. So, <laughs> thanks. That was a joke. Uh, thanks for that, bud. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite parts about this film, uh, specifically in the theater, and maybe... I, See, that's the thing that's fucked up about this film. It's the Manson family, so no one really gives a shit what happens to them. Mm. So that's the another genius moment by Tarantino, who's done this multiple times now throughout his career. But um, I, I was just like sitting and obviously enjoying what was transpiring in the final scene, as I, like most other Tarantino viewers was patiently waiting for the extraordinary violence that was going to occur at some point throughout the film. And it had finally arrived at the end of this film and I was sitting and enjoying it very nicely. And then Rick Dalton just strolls into the, <laughs> strolls into the shed, gets out the flamethrower and proceeds to burn that woman. Just to check out check his flamethrower, man. Yeah. I mean, which that... in some ways, in my opinion is even more, violent and unnecessary than anything Cliff Booth does. Because by the time she's oh, yeah, that's, in that's, that pool, yeah, yeah. he could have just gotten out of the pool. Yeah. And called after... And, and, <laughs> and ca- called and, it a day. And, you no, know, and called after Cliff or some shit yeah. like that. But no, he was like, oh, God damn it, I'm gonna fucking get my fucking flame forward. I mean... The other thing that's <laughs> fucked up about that, and to your point, even though I obviously don't feel the same way about the character, but to your point... Uh, That's what he, I'm talking about. These fourth wall breaking things that are, that are going on here. It feels implausible that it's so extreme like this. But then, considering that within the universe context, sorry. Continue. He, no, no. 
uh, he has no awareness of what's happened. That's what I'm talking about. He's doing it without any context. Exactly. Which is arguably worse because he has no idea why she's clearly struggling (laughs) in the pool. It it makes sense maybe in a meta context. I'll say this. I have a pool. I don't want to brag, but I have a pool in my backyard. (laughs) Okay. Well, I just want to let it finish. I don't know. It, we all we both know this. I, I, I thought weird if I just be like, I have a pool. But here's the thing: though. I too have a pool. Here's the thing: if God forbid a woman ever ran out of my back door and jumped into the pool, clearly covered in blood and viscera and whatever, I don't think. Any amount of cutlery that she could or could not be holding, which in this case is one little knife and one gun would, that she pulls okay, well, fires off in the yeah, fucking yeah. fucking air like fucking uh, uh, Yosemite Sam. I would honestly probably only see that as a call for help, and maybe that's because I'm stupid. And the last thing I would do would probably be go into my garage, grab a flamethrower, flame and just make sure that they're fucking dead before I call the cops. <laughs> Um, I just don't know that Holy shit. when I, when my parents signed the contract to put the in-ground pool in, I, we, we signed the clause and it said, should any stragglers, uh, <laughs> find their way into this lovely swimming, uh, hole, so, suburban pool, yeah, like. um, we, we owe it to them. To, to, not, get, to get them out. And to not burn them to death. To not immolate them. No, but that's honestly what makes that scene fucking hysterical, but also kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah. um, in that he is so, I think, happy to <laughs> live out a character which is kind of hearkening back to the conversation he had yeah. with that girl. Yeah. Which is that, you know, you don't like to break character because if you could live in it, then you'll be a better actor. Mm-hmm. So for him to seize this moment because, and we've seen it in a flashback, we've seen how he has used a flamethrower before and how much of a pussy he looked like. <laughs> so for him to actually... It's too hot. <laughs> for too him, hot. Yeah. For, for him to basically get a do-over fueled by alcohol, clearly. Oh, yeah. Um, and lose all of his inhibition and to do it over in the most frightening in real life way possible but because of Tarantino with a fucking Mansonite um, that just it just it makes it a, totally fine a wonderful and, and I will say I'm not the only one that was giggling to myself in the oh, theater when right. this all happened because half of my theater from the moment he just ran to the shed just fucking was cheered up. yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and I will say um, just the the polar opposites of a woman being in a pool getting murdered by fire is just, I don't know. Yeah. There's just something about that, that even in a super comedic moment in a Tarantino film. It's grisly. Um, it's grisly, but at the same time, like, just scientifically, like, that's, that's something nuts. you don't see every day of someone being burned to death while they're in a swimming In pool. a body of water. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, sort, sort of circling back to, like, Rick being drunk. Uh, one of my favorite parts about the ending, about at least the lead up to the ending, is him coming out of the house and like giving the the Mansonite shit over their their noisy muffler and just leaning in and just like talking shit about them and then just like staring them down while also just like taking a fucking drag out of this fucking margarita, this fucking margarita uh, mixer that he just carried outside with him. I said to Alex. <laughs> like, that's a- 
incredible. It's like he's like the, the, even the fact that like he threatened himself with like killing himself like for forgetting his lines, and then it proceeds just that same day to then go back home and start cracking up some beers and just like like nothing happened while watching FBI. He's still back on his bullshit. Yeah. Well, to be fair, that's six months later. I know, but, but it's, it's, no, it's no, no, but I'm saying well, the, the ending scene is. Yeah, 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 yeah. What yeah, you're yeah. referencing is that night. Yeah, he goes back but I also circle with, back to the, the yeah, yeah the previous thing. But and then like, from the moment he was like, "Oh, I should give up drinking," yeah. two six months later, I mean, he's he, still he, back on he, his bullshit. No, and absolutely, he, he doesn't make it eight seconds. He no. starts. To, he's oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will say, uh, I had texted Alex after I saw it, and one of the things I said was, "Man, can Leo hold a fucking margarita pitcher?" Right. That, I, I mean, that was just a godsend. Yeah. Um, okay. No, I, oh, I yeah. um, him drunk, and I did just watch this again recently mm-hmm. um, as well. So um, they're definitely, but boy, I'm pretty, I am pretty confident that when Tarantino was trying to get something out of him for that scene, uh, and the scene I'm specifically referencing is him yelling at the Manson family people while they're in the car. <sighs> I am pretty sure he harkened back to when you were arguing with the police after the lewd scene <laughs> in Wolf of Wall Street. That's what I want. Yeah. Because, like, his tone, the, like, way he speaks, the, like, volume of his voice is identical to that scene that mm-hmm. I just watched Wolf of Wall Street again a couple of days ago. Yeah. But just the idea... You goddamn hippies! What the fuck? <laughs> you came up here to get smoke this, dope. Get, uh, it's a private fucking lane. You wheel that shit, shit box out of here, yeah. <laughs> and then they leave. Yeah, and then and then he it. takes another drag off of his margarita yeah. thing before walking inside. And then Uma Thurman's daughter, who's randomly she's there. the one who runs away, right? Yes. Yeah, and takes the oh, car, drives yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was actually kind of and That's another alt alt history sort of like yeah. presentation. I thought well. that was kind of funny in the yeah. sense that when we, just as anybody looks back, especially people who weren't alive during the era, mm-hmm. uh, when we read about some, one of our first, I think, thoughts is like, how did this happen and how did so many people, you know, agree with it and, right, and, right. and go with it? Right. So I do think it was actually a pretty good punchline that – even one of the people in this version of Manson was like, this is fucked up, yeah, right, right. And, and ran away. Uh, my coworker brought up when we were talking about Stranger Things a couple weeks mm. ago, but uh, I watched a couple episodes after we talked about this, and they were just 100% correct that Maya Hawk uh, is like the fucking Mona Lisa, where in like if you look at her one way, she looks just like Ethan Hawke, mm. and if you look at her another way, she looks just like Uma Thurman, and it's kind of fucked up. I'm with you because yeah. I've only seen two or three of Stranger Things, mm-hmm. but from that show alone and some of her seeing them, I'm like, oh, and yeah, no, I'm with you completely, yeah. and your coworker, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the ending with regards to Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I'll lead off with is that I pretty much what clinched this film for all of its references and for all the fun it had with a lot of stuff that I eat up. Uh, this became what will end up being a really high rating for me with the final scene of the movie uh, with Leo DiCaprio outside of the gate of yeah. Sharon Tate's house mm-hmm. talking to Jay Sebrig um, where Mar- by the way, Emil Hirsch. He's not been in a lot recently. Well, that's one of the problematic aspects of this movie because he's someone who probably should be canceled because he beat the shit out of uh, 
his girlfriend oh, publicly like mm-hmm. is not a rumor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was charged for it, mm-hmm. and he I think even I can't remember if it was him. Who does Emil Hirsch play as? J. Sebrig. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah. The Sharon Tate's Whoa. friend. Um, I guess that's probably why he hasn't been around recently. And it's like, on the yeah. one hand, he's a dead ringer for J. Sebrig, so it kind of makes sense. But on the other hand, that's not accept. That's not right. an excuse. So right. Right. if he was recasted, I would totally be fine, especially because he didn't bring anything to it that right. was like, was say, if they like brought, Brad Pitt or They would have brought in did. Eric Stoltz. It would have been totally fine. <laughs> what was – sorry to, yeah. to, to get off topic, but about um, Emile Hirsch being casted as this and him probably needing to be canceled um, – it reminds me of this one director. I can't remember who it was, but it was in regards to um, – what the fuck is his name? Guy who was on Nate House – Parker? No, guy who was on House of Cards. Kevin guy, Spacey? Hugh yeah, Kevin, Kevin Spacey. Oh. Hugh Laurie. And somebody – House, house. <laughs> dot, dot, dot of cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just uh, heard House. So, it was like I was on fucking so Jeopardy. There, there was, the first there was thing some director – Who are three who people was, who have never been in my kitchen. There was some director who was talking about how – like, why shouldn't I be allowed to like cast like Kevin Spacey in a film if I want to? Oh, yeah. You know who that is? I can't remember who that is. I don't was. remember, familiar, but I do know it? what you're talking about. Right, yeah, 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 some right. director did say that. Right. I fucking forget – I'm not gonna remember. Yeah, but I do. You are right. You're right. But that was a quote. Yeah, that sort of that sort of echoes um, sort of the um, sentiments of that. And I was just like, you know, if Kevin Spacey should be canceled, then this guy probably should definitely be canceled. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, I, I need to point out to Alex because he gave me a look when I said <laughs> he's he look. Well, he said like we're on Jeopardy, and then I said the phrase, or I should say the question, or the answer, uh, who are three people who have never been in my kitchen, because that is the immortal line from an episode of Cheers, when Cliff goes on Jeopardy, and he's so excited, because obviously he's a know-it-all, and he's doing actually extremely well all the way up until the final Jeopardy, and the question, or the category is whatever, and it's like, and it goes, what do these three people and it names three historical figures having common and then he doesn't know the answer and he genuinely writes down who are three people that have never been in my kitchen and Alex Trebek is just kind of like okay <laughs> it's just great anyway uh, nice cheers reference thank who you. knew we were going to have one of those uh, you know while we're talking about a movie that celebrates TV but <laughs> mostly procedurals and westerns but anyway yeah. um all right, let's talk about Sharon Tate and that okay. final scene. I I thought that the the scene in which she uh, phones in to her intercom to talk to Leo, uh, or I should say Rick Dalton, uh, I genuinely was almost on the verge of tearing up because I thought that that was a yeah. beautiful moment mm-hmm. and truly crystallized what Tarantino was doing throughout the entire film. This is all it was leading up to. Yeah. And I just thought that for how many think pieces that are going to be written about how horrible Tarantino is and how all he does is co-op other people's misery and use it for very surface pleasure, retribution, whatever, I'm like, the thing I'm walking out of this movie feeling and remembering is that this guy who is usually targeted as a exploitator, you know, um, is basically leaving the audience with a simple question, which is what if Sharon Tate was only remembered for the potential that she had? And isn't that a more 
uh, worthy story to tell. This is leagues more fucking tasteful than any other fucking like production concerning like the the Manson murders or Sharon Tate that's been come out come out in the past like fucking year. I it's, was gonna it's, say we've had two really random movies that came out. One was called Charlie Says, and another one I don't forget. I think it's The Haunting of Sharon Tate, yeah. which is exactly what people thought. Uh, Tarantino would do because it's all about Hillary Duff is Sharon Tate and Hill, uh, Sharon fights back and um, it, that's it's, gross. Yeah, it's and fucking it's gross. So stupid. And so here we have a, a final scene, and I just what I kind of loved about it was that you didn't see Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate because it really then I thought for a movie in which she yeah she doesn't have a lot of lines I grant you but I don't think she needed them because I felt the luminous presence of her and how she kind of loomed over this picture in general mm-hmm. so when we get to that final scene I thought it was even more beautiful that at that point there's almost an even more deeper connection with a spiritual connection to because you're not seeing someone portray her right. so much as you are someone talking to her when she's not even there which that's what people do after they're dead. I mean, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. I just thought that was so ethereal and so goddamn beautiful and that it somehow worked after one of the most and violent and, you know, ridiculously brutal Tarantino end, moments. Like, she's okay. Yeah. She's okay. And that and that that's really sort of what ties it together. It's like you have Jay who is asking through the uh the gate or whatever, it's like, Oh wow, it's like what the fuck happened? And I was like, You guys okay? It's like, is everybody okay? It's like, Well the hippies aren't fucking okay. And it's like, Well what were they planning to do? We don't know what they were planning to do. And so this film They don't even get to be the footnote in history no. that they were desperately and, trying and to And even make. even Marilyn Manson I'm sorry, uh yes. Charles Charles Manson. I know Marilyn, Ma- Marilyn I, Manson I, I Char- strolled up there with his missing ribs. Charles Manson is up. so is so marginal in this film <laughs> to the point where there is a scene in I just rewatched the trailer. There's a scene in the trailer the it's only very, scene he's in. The only like the only scene that he's in yeah. where he he comes down from actually like visiting the house and coming back to the ice cream truck or whatever and there's a shot in the actual trailer where it has him looking up at Cliff on top of Rick's uh, 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 roof fixing the uh, the antenna and he waves and that is usually the, the – that, that scene doesn't even exist and really the only time that you see his face – is when he's just like doing this whole circular motion, is like just looking around, like, huh? It's like it's not even. That's uh, when they were like it, scoping out the street, right? Yeah. Well, when 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 yeah. he he went up to ask if uh, if Terry was there or some shit yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the only full profile that we have of this guy. He has no other fucking real presence in this, and I feel like that's deliberate in the sense that what you like what we're talking about, how their footnote is totally excised. Like he is. His infamy, whatever the fuck you want to surround it with, whatever like their intentions were not rewarded. Their intentions were not rewarded, and he has rendered something so infinitesimal that he is smaller than a speck but, of sand on a fucking beach. But in the in the in the leagues of history, that's does, what it is. It does show also the difference in the way that Tarantino has presented his films, where he has completely altered history, as in Glorious Bastards, and obviously a much different scenario is playing out, and not to take anything away from the Manson murders, but the Holocaust is another level. I mean, just scale-wise, yeah. certainly. No, yeah. I mean, just as far as that, I can understand why you would uh, put Hitler on a, not a pedestal, because that would be weird, um, <laughs> but on a bigger... But no, he, 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 he has Hitler murdered and then shot 400 times in the face, yeah. 
in that film. And here he goes a completely opposite direction where it, it, he, Charles Manson, is completely just disregarded as a as a non-entity, as he, he is ba- basically nothing. He is someone who corrupted women and other people, and he's lower than nothing. And he's yeah. sidelined. And yeah. you know what? Uh, it's obviously different from the other film that he did. Um, but that, that that doesn't necessarily but, make either bad. It just is, is different, and it's great. But Tarantino knows you've seen his other films. And he uses that against you because the entire time you're watching this, if you haven't read the you know plot summary or something like that, there's a good chance that that might happen at the end. Oh no! And I so totally for, thought that, that would have happened. Exactly. And yeah. So for you, for anyone, myself included, to like, to watch this and for it to hang over, and then for the uh, the epilogue, not epilogue, but the final stretch to truly yeah. start, uh, to start with such meticulous detail, almost journalistic. In his, you know, recounting because they say what time that, mm-hmm. you know, where they went for like dinner. a true crime yeah. doc. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you are then just talking on... about what the dog is doing yeah. while they're away. Yeah. <laughs> um, you are primed for what you know Tarantino to do. And at for... this time, Rick and Cliff were at the bottom of a bottomless margarita. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and for him to swerve out of that lane and to say that this was never about revenge, this was about pummeling the idea that there's there's they're even worth that kind of you know meaning uh i just thought it was it was fantastic i have a question a trivia question and i feel like you would be the only one who would know this nick maybe so um during the whole like true crime doc like part of the the finale the lead up to the 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 climax when Sharon Tate and her friends go to that restaurant and she asks, what's that premiere over there? It's like, oh, it's a dirty movie. They have premieres for dirty movies. Do you know what that premiere is? Um, in my opinion, that was anachronistic okay. in general. Okay. There is a theater that down the street did play dirty movies, but not for a few years. And 1967... Dirty movies would not have mean the same thing in the context that they mean now, which makes it weird that she would say it then. Mm. Um, I think that was more a hat tip to, A, the coming tide of sexuality pervading uh, cinema. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on over Nothing there? Nothing good. Oh, because I said coming tide? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All over your face. Um, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, uh, I think that was more of a... a, a Indicator of that, paired with the fact that um, Sharon Tate herself, had she stayed a movie, I don't think she would have done pornography, but sexploitation, unfortunately, was probably her avenue if if history of what she had been accepted as Mm -hmm. uh, continued to pay. Because, unfortunately, like, even in one of her obituaries, I think it was either Time or New York Times, like called her a sex pot in, like, the headline, as mm. if that's all she was, right. uh, which is, you know, unfortunate and whatnot. So right. I think that was more of a call to uh, what would happen in the future than it was as to anything that was happening then, because there's definitely Reducing no... Reducing women only to their sexuality. N- yeah, there's yeah. definitely no notable sex film that someone would have reasonably been able to point out... Uh, 
Yeah. So I think that was anachronistic in okay. general. But Thank there you. was a dirty movie theater on that strip basically about two to three years later. Okay. So I think it was just a nice little alt history marriage yeah. of stuff. Cool. No, I, Thank I, you. I did like that that swerve in line of dialogue too yeah. when they were walking up there. That was that's pretty great. So two things I will say. Um I love the marriage of Sharon Tate and um Jay Sebring. And Rick Dalton, as Rick Dalton is, like, walking to this, like, he's literally walking uphill to his career, has just had a massive improvement, but he, he thwarted this. That, it's almost Disney-esque but, with the music. Well, and but, the but, but, it, but it is an extraordinarily interesting connection between a historical figure and mm-hmm. our protagonist from the film. So I, I that th- shot is fantastic. Oh yes, the way it like in the middle of the shot as it's moving almost dwarfs uh, Leo because I don't think you can see him for a few seconds after he's first passed through the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, as they get to the courtyard and the front yard or whatever, mm-hmm. and then he reemerges past behind one of the buildings. I I just love that it it is a bird's eye view, but from this kind of slightly slanted angle that does not allow you to see all the pieces. At, at any given moment. So right before that is actually one of my favorite um, viewpoints of the entire film, uh, and that is literally uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio finally being separated as uh, they are now mm-hmm. moving in different aspects of their career, and Brad Pitt literally being taken away yeah. in an ambulance. Uh, I was going to say, symbolically, fant- that's pretty fantastic. great. Yeah. But that's the only way that they could actually be removed from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even though that's... I mean, they said that they clearly were going to right. go their separate ways, but it, it, the only way, and the fact that he's made his career out of being a stuntman, and we've seen yeah, the yeah. shot with his shirt off, which is important because it's fucking Brad Pitt. Yep. But also, we see all his fucking scars everywhere. Like he has lived a hard fucking life mm-hmm. throughout this time period, even with all his you know good looking face and his Hawaiian shirts and shit. Like he's a guy who's had to do bullshit work and get fucked up and having to fight Bruce Lee. And even though Bruce Lee's an asshole in this movie, and that's fine. <laughs> uh, it, but yeah, that 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 that's view of him getting taken away in the ambulance was was pretty fucking awesome. So yeah. let's talk about the Bruce Lee scene real quickly because really oh, quickly. Yep. No, no, no. Yep. I just so that way I I won't have to bring it up again to tie into the question you asked me about mm-hmm. the dirty movie talk. Yeah. One joke in this movie that I don't know if it was intentional, but I'm going to say it's canonical anyway. Yeah, sure. Because it it made me laugh <laughs> and I am the arbiter of what's funny. <laughs> that wasn't funny. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I am um, uh, for her to ask about dirty movies and then kind of how that's like a harbinger of what they don't know at that time and what might be coming, whatever. There's a joke early on in the movie where you see a clip of Rick Dalton performing on the show Hullabaloo, which was a real show. Mm-hmm. And he's singing a real song that at the time was a, you know, radio hit called Behind the Green Door. Yeah. And at that time, that was a real hit and that whatever. And that was just about what it's like to not get let into a club. Now, that's funny thematically Mm -hmm. because Rick Dalton feels like he's not allowed to truly get into the club because he feels like he's on the way down or whatever, especially having to do fucking shows like Hullabaloo. But also, if you take that within the context of Hollywood, Behind the Green Door is now... In 2019, the phrase is probably more remembered as the title of the Johnny Keys, uh, I think, Marilyn Chamber 
porno film behind the green door. You mentioned this. Yeah, when we sorry to bother you. Yeah, sorry to bother you. Yeah, because that was the literal green door. Yeah. Um, And so behind the green door, I'll say it again: is the porno in which uh, I think is Marilyn Chambers uh, famously just goes through a series of rooms uh, in a club, having sex with people along the way. But there's a green door at the end. What's behind it? It's been since we did the sorry to bother you episode that you mentioned that. Feels oh. like you just talked about that. Well, I may have talked about Johnny Keys when I talked about um, just any time I talked about porn. In okay, uh, because he was the was only say, notable. I, 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 oh, I Boogie just, Nights! Okay. I probably said something about uh, Don Cheadle's character because he was almost a little too ingrained into okay. the culture of pornography. I, I was more saying because I feel like we just talked about that. And are you saying I talk about behind the green door too much? <laughs> Uh, I wasn't going for that, but maybe you are if that's how strongly and passionately you feel about it. But no, I I feel like you just mentioned it, and if I was going to say that's crazy if it was on the Sorry to Bother You episode, so that's fine. Yeah, I think I'm just becoming an old person. Oh, that, maybe like time is just going way too fast. <laughs> well, that now. was definitely the time when I first or yeah. just described it. Yeah. But anyway, for that phrase, so it's funny because in 2019, for him to sing a song behind the green door. An audience member could realistically forget that there was a context before that context, and forget that that was just a a you know radio hit that people sang because that was the quaint thing to do, and you know he's singing it horribly because it's, it's just kind of a joke. Hmm. Um, but I think what this movie does in a lot of scenes is recontextualizes past Hollywood nostalgia and how it means something different in the context of the audience and the era that they're watching it. And that is one, I thought, hilarious example because I could not stop cracking up when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is just asking, oh, why won't they let me behind the green door? Well, probably because there's a big black cock waiting for you behind there. So, anyway. uh, (laughs) What did you... What was I talking about? Want to talk about. What was I referencing? You wanted to talk about... Wait, are you testing me? No, I I genuinely can't remember right now. I know what you were going to talk about. And it was? It was... I feel like I do know. It's it's on the tip of my dick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... This is good podcast. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold Mm -hmm. on. I'm going to remember this. Uh-huh. You wanted to talk about... <laughs> yep. Uh, not Sharon Tate. Nope. Not... Not... Cliff, Cliff Booth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not... I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a, I know, like... Oh, boy. It was, like, literally two minutes ago. I know. Yeah. This is so sad. Yeah. Yeah. We were just so taken away with all these stories about the green door. and Were we? Yeah. I was. Yeah. Okay. Um... Now Nick's doing his best impression of the uh, the man from the other side from Twin Peaks. Just doing hmm. his dance. Yeah. Which he's got moves. Oh, he sure does. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is really going to bother me. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure it out right after we stop recording this that's episode. Yeah. That's okay. That's just. I, I feel like I had something there that you I did. wanted to talk about, no, but sir. I just can't. That's okay. This is yeah. my fault. Can't rewind. I can't even. I mean, I could have, but then we would. That would kind of take away from what we're doing here. What if yeah. we made an alt universe version of this episode where? Wow. Um, 
Alex, I remember Alex, what I was going to talk about. Yeah, Alex did not forget <laughs> about. Well, this margarita is really good that I'm drinking, so I got mm. a little distracted. <laughs> so, um, before we get to final ratings, overall, we talked about performances. I think everybody hit on that they that they were pretty much giving high praise on on the performance in this film. Uh, but the meta aspect of Leonardo DiCaprio, who's overall in his career been an actor who's at times been not the greatest, um, but has seriously in competition most times for the most improved actor uh, award throughout the entirety of his career as he's come a long way from what's eating Gilbert Grape and other performances early in his career when he was a child actor for the most part. But he has always had this weird thing where you mentioned Daniel Day-Lewis earlier, Nick, where obviously that is like the other end of the spectrum where you have like the ultimate method actor. Uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio always feels like he's bringing part of his own personality yeah. into his characters. Like some of the ways like his shouting or yelling or excitement, like it all comes feels... from the same yeah. well of rage. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and also too, like, like he can't like change his voice really. Like he can like kind of do like a Southern accent, but it still sounds like him. So that just continues here. But the, the idea of him probably having the best acting scene of his career in a scene where he's an actor trying to have the best acting scene of his career and he's is pretty fucking awesome. In the context of just being a guest villain mm-hmm. in a Bonanza ripoff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, that's all Lancer was. So, that, I mean, that's just pretty fucking great I, i'm with you uh and and everything that happens before that with the camera motions and you have the entirety of the scene as it's going for the most part pretty well uh and then he starts to forget his lines and then timothy oliphant is like wanting to be done his facial reactions <laughs> for having like no lines during that kind of moment are pretty great because he never quite like completely breaks of like fuck this shit but Boy, does he just kind of have it feels a, like a nice, hour. yeah, oh, nice yeah. little scowl of like, you know, I do this fucking five days a week, and he can't even come in and do it for one day, and and which is, I'm sure, uh, an attitude that some people who work on TV would definitely have for good reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, uh, should I tell my little anecdote Please. about a Mr. James Stacy, uh, who Timothy here is playing, playing wonderfully, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, fun fact about James Stacy, who is a real actor, and he was on Lancer, uh, just like in this movie. Uh, he famous, well, maybe not famously, I don't know that it's mm. like super famous, but uh, I want to say in the 70s, he was in a motorcycle or a car accident, one of the two, where he lost his then wife mm. and one Aww. of his arms. Yeah. Mm. So that was my story. Oh, wait a minute. Then 20 years later, he was charged for child molestation. So he joins Roman Polanski mm. as another male in this film who has a future uh, in losing their tragic, uh, losing their wife in a tragic accident or something out of their control, only to then throw their lives away, at least in one respect, uh, by uh, being a pedophile. So I thought that was a weird mm. correlation between an extremely famous person and obviously an extremely uh, obscure television actor. Yeah. Um. Anyone, this is not what I was thinking of earlier, yeah. so, but 
Uh, we mentioned it briefly. Anyone read anything into uh, Brad Pitt making mention of wanting to know someone's age for sure if he's going to have sex with them in the car? I thought that was mostly doing Cliff's Booth's foundation of really getting you to sympathize with this character throughout because yeah. no matter how effortlessly cool he is, he has a code of some sort. Right. Uh, so that when the fireplace stomp, man, that sounds like a really fun dance. Fireplace stomp. <laughs> light him up, light him up. Get him, Brandy. Uh, when that happens, God, then that everything dog. you thought about this fun white male. No, I just want that dog PETA. Uh, Man, that'd be awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. they do weird shit too. Yeah. Um, but I had thought that's mostly for that. Now, could you read it into it for sure? I mean, it's Hollywood, and there's a lot of stories out there. Um, sure. But I mean, in a film that, and that's why I mentioned before that there was a line early on when uh, randomly Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski are are at the, um, the it's not Playboy randomly, Mansion, but they're at the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. Uh, and someone is talking about the peculiar relationship between the two of them and Jay Sebring. Uh, and the fact that someone brings up people and being younger and a certain age. And I'm like, oh, shit. Someone's going to say something about Roman Polanski liking people who are young. And it's going to be fucked up. I don't know, man. I mean, I feel like I am reading too much into it. I, like that was I always inverse. do. Was I that? Think... It was inverse. It was like she likes him. She has a type. Well, no, her type was shorter uh, European and who looked like small boys. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I, it's it's only because Roman Polanski is technically there. Here's the thing: I'm, it's, I'm looking it's for one I'm of those things for where any, any, anything that talks about things. people yeah. wanting uh, people who are younger, too yeah. too young. For yeah, them. Yeah, 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 it's one of those things where it's undeniable because it's Roman Polanski. So how do yeah. you write a script that features Roman Polanski and not be cognizant of these things? Yeah. On the other hand. It's Hollywood, and yeah, it's there for you. In right, turn. Roman Polanski could not be in this movie, and that could be a line that would be untouched because that's so. I, I'm mm. with you, but also, no, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying just like talk about the ambiguousness oh, of, yeah. of the finale. Um, it's certainly there, and you can read whatever you want to into it. But it is um, obviously. I was looking for anything that could signify that, and it was a couple moments that were there. So, yeah. yeah. I remember one thing I did want to talk about, and I believe Tucson wanted to talk about it as well, which is the presence of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not Photoshop, but inter... Interpolation. Interpolation, uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio's character into also movies. Also aspect ratios. Oh, and aspect ratios. All right, let's do one and the other. So yeah. so as far as interpolation goes, um, it's interesting that so many times we put uh, Rick Dalton into actual scenes that have existed in, yeah. throughout time, not in just actual scenes, but also replacing very famous actors like Burt Reynolds and whatnot, um, and how that is this kind of interchangeable character, which I think is interesting because... Um, Technically speaking, Rick Dalton is a fictional composite. He's right. not a real person. And whatever person that some historian may track down and think like, oh, he's clearly a stand-in for this or mm -hmm. that, it's still... There's way no one-to-one. -one yeah, it's way more complicated It's more of like that. this is inspired by somebody, but it's really its own thing. Yeah. It's like comparing uh, the, the Lebowski dude to whoever that dude was 
inspired by. There is a person who was the dude, right. but it's not really all that important. But they didn't make a movie about the dude. <laughs> they didn't make a movie about that dude. They made their own dude to tell their own movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and that's why I thought it was all the more poignant that when Sharon Tate watches her movies, she, uh, Margot Robbie, sees the real Sharon Tate in those scenes. And I first, when those scenes were unfolding, I had a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, he couldn't do it in these scenes because these are slightly more complicated because she's moving all over the frame and that would have been whatever. But then I thought, whether that's true or not, that's beside the point because in reality... That is such a loving tribute to the screen presence of uh, Sharon Tate that the person that we are knowing in this alt-universe to be Sharon Tate gets to get wrapped up in her own presence. And while it works as its own as a scene in which an actress gets to find validation among her peers without having to either A, ask for it, or B, get it with any unnecessary comments on top of it, like, there was no, uh, excuse me, I burped. <laughs> there was no scene of, like, someone yelling in the background, like, she's hot or whatever. Like, this was just a purely joyous occasion for her to observe it and also take it in at the same time. And yet it was such a respectful and loving tribute to her before we even got to the finale. So it acknowledged, I thought, the career and the charisma of Sharon Tate before it even dared to play in the playground of history regarding her lived experience. And I I thought that was just really fantastic. And I thought that was one of my favorite scenes of the film, for sure. And I just thought it's made all the more striking because of how many times uh, Tarantino puts DiCaprio in uh, some of those other scenes. uh, So I thought that was fantastic. Uh, But yeah... um, So, yeah, aspect ratios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I looked up something about uh, how there's a shift between – now, you probably know this a lot more than I do. Like the standard standard degree for aspect ratios for cinematic films is two points something uh, to one ratio. And then there's the actual television ratio, which is – I think one point thirty three to one to one. Yeah, that's yeah. what they call the four by three ratio. Yeah, the four by three ratio. Um, the standard for cinema these days is it's lower than two point thirty five because two point thirty five to one is more of a it's more akin. It's the modern day equivalent of like a uh, cinemascope, which is not to say yeah. that it's as wide as that. Yeah, but it gives a, a similar impression of a. Uh, extremely wide berth of an angle, so to speak. Uh, cinema these days are more adhering to just above 1.78 to 1, because 1.78 is what your TVs are, mm-hmm. uh, and or you should say 16 by 9 to be even more uh, simple. Uh, American, I'm, I just looked this up. Uh, American, American cinematographer says that... Um, well, it sounds like you know a lot more about it. No, 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 no. It's like the result is a meta movie about films and filmmaking, one in which Tarantino masterfully shifts between simulated TV footage and soundstage interactions, between color and black and white, between 2.39 to 1 and 1.33 to 1. Now, see, 2.39 is even larger than 2.35. Yeah. And that, I don't know if they're blowing some of their ass. No, but no, like, but here's the thing, though. Back in the 60s, like I said, mm-hmm. 
that would make more sense because that was more from the era in which things like CinemaScope and mm-hmm. whatnot was. Yeah. So if anything, that may have just further proved my point, which is a standard movie that you would go see in 2019 is going to be slightly uh, taller than that. Yeah. Um, man, I'm pretty fucking good with these numbers. Yeah, you are. Uh, That's why I asked you. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, it was all period appropriate. There was nothing, I would say, special about it other than just the meticulous adherence to the format that he was doing. Like, I was super glad that when we would switch to an episode of Bounty Law, which was a fake TV show that's never existed, so he didn't have to, but he had adhered to the 4 by 3 and whatnot ratios. Um, which, by the way, the, the scenes of Bounty Law in the beginning of this movie were fucking impeccable. Like, yeah. that... Bounty Law. <laughs> from the voiceover people that they get to the actual camera work, nothing, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of TV westerns, but I've seen a few of, like, Have Gun, Will Travel, which is fantastic. Uh, it's actually where uh, Gene Roddenberry cut his teeth before Star Trek. Oh. Um, and a few others. And that's, Bounty Law, I mean, that's ex- that's what they look like. Uh, the only thing that was a little too clear, in my opinion, for the fidelity of it was the interview uh, yeah. that aired, which was exactly what they used to do, too, to promote mm-hmm. their programs. Right. But um, that, A little bit more film grain. It doesn't look as... Yeah, that it, was it a little too yeah. whatever. But, it, I mean, it was still pitch-perfect recreation. I absolutely loved it. I could have watched an actual fake episode of Bounty Law. In fact, I kind of wish that they would have made one just to mm-hmm. put on, like, the bonus disc and... You know what? I'm going to call Tarantino right now. Cross <laughs> your fingers. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I was I was obviously ecstatic for that. And um, it makes me a little upset that we didn't see, I mean, we saw like the briefest glimpses. And I know that there's only so much you can show, especially for a movie that's two hours and 45 minutes. But I would have loved to see some more of the Italian exploitation films that uh, Cliff, or well, Cliff and Rick, but Rick mm-hmm. and Cliff, the uh, posters were phenomenal. I mean, those were fantastic, uh, obviously. Very Nav- period, Navajo Jim. Period appropriate. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. I was like, oh. Yeah. Um, and, and for it to. <laughs> oh, man. And I no, I'm with you there. And I yeah. thought those posters were fantastic. And even the sight gag of, uh, of Cliff bringing one of them in, I think it's for Navajo yeah. Jim, into the living room. Just how ridiculously big that one. He's yeah. like, where should I put the. Operation yeah. Dynamite. Yeah, and that's uh, which is actually made by Antonio Margaretti, mm-hmm. which is the, the name of. I got eighty. Yep. Yeah. So I thought that was a wonderful <laughs> Italian from uh, hmm. Glorious. Yeah. 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 So, which is a real director as well. Yeah. But that's who he was pretending to be in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, and did everybody before we even get to final ratings. Yeah. But did everybody stay for the mid credit scene? Yes, I did. Saw it. Yeah. Red apples. Was, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, who the fuck picked this picture? It's like with his double chin. <laughs> so it just punches it in the face and it falls back. That's amazing. Yeah. We and I don't think we need to really discuss it or anything like that. But um, I thought the use of Al Pacino in this film was actually not bad too. Um, not that Tarantino usually would do that or anything of that nature, but at the same time, Al Pacino has slowly just slithered into just being worthless in his older life and made a bunch of just shit-ass movies and been in really horrible roles in movies that are even good. Um, and here, he's not really embarrassing himself. He's just playing this Hollywood director 
who really just wants to let Rick Dalton know that he's not doing well. Like he's really playing the character that he wishes that he had in his own life to tell him, "Hey, maybe you shouldn't do this shit." But the uh, the uh, crazy thing you about You know Jack and Jill, how about Jack and No? Someone should have told him. Simone, that. how about Sno? <laughs> Things are going well in the last good movies, any given Sunday, and that movie's shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Pacino, not Pacino, yes. <laughs> oh, boy. No, but what's great about what Pacino's doing uh, in, in what Tarantino's doing, too, is that clearly uh, Al Pacino's character's sole purpose is to try to ruin his confidence so he will be in his movies. Uh, and it obviously succeeds. Yeah. So Basically knowing that like he can't persuade him out of doing what he's going to do mm-hmm. in this moment so he can plant the seeds Absolutely. for doubt so that when it does fail, he'll be able to say, oh, this happened exactly like I said it did and you want to be in the movie that I told you you should be in. Yeah. And, yep, no, absolutely. No, that, um, that, was, that was wonderful. I love every time that they cut to Al Pacino's character's house, it never fucking looks like a house. Like, they're so rich that, like, they look like they have a full-service bar in their basement. And, um, God, I was kind of on this film's wavelength when in that very... Uh, first scene, but seconds or so scene where he's having that dinner with him, uh, with Leo. And every time he he preempts everything that he says he watched with what film stock he watched it on yeah. at his own house, uh, no person would ever speak that way. But because, I'm not saying literally none, but I genuinely think that was more of a Tarantino thing than yeah. it was a trying to recreate the you know, Hollywood era. What? You don't talk about what film stock or format you actually watched a film on when you mentioned you watched a film with somebody? No, Tarantino. I don't do that. I just thought that that was fantastic. No that, one does. One of the funniest <laughs> he moments. He references actually. a kinetoscope, which is yeah. a recording of a television playing the program because at the time they did not record for posterity any programs so they would actually just aim a camera at the screen and zoom it into the point where the the angle of the camera that is recording it it only takes up and you can actually see the curved edges Holy of it. Shit. Yeah. yeah. And those are real surviving elements that we have of, right. of certain things like uh like America's Playhouse and whatnot. Uh because they were live, but that's the other thing, too. So, anyway. Uh, one of the early scenes in this film actually had one of the funniest and also, I thought, actually under the radar more poignant things about this film. Uh, when It's a little bit of shaming uh, Hispanics when they're walking out uh, from that opening scene and uh, Brad Pitt gives Leonardo DiCaprio his sunglasses. He's like... You don't want the Mexicans see you cry. No, it's like, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Yeah. <laughs> it's just no, like... I mean, I mean it, it, um, the the fact that they're just being talked down about, of being like, you don't want to see have them see that. Oh, I, I my know, God, it was, yeah. It, it was funny, but also um, landing much better. That um, casual that, racism that yeah. was sort of like endemic oh, yeah. of that time. Where Of course, they, they... But it's playing off perfectly now in modern times when reviewing the film. Of, yeah, yeah, it's like, of course, well, of course they, they have a problem with crying from the Mexicans. Of course, they have a problem with hippies. Of course, they got a problem with the fucking Italians. No, no, no but but that is the thing, though, where, I mean, I know, obviously, Charles Manson and his friends right, right, uh, didn't right. feel this way. But at the same time, like, 
being accepting of black people and everything, but Mexicans are still lower than dirt. So oh, you don't, you don't. I mean, yeah, come on, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yes, in that sort of context. Nick. You wanted to talk about the Bruce Lee scene. Ah, wonderful job, sir. Yeah, and that's a good uh, way to end before we go to final yeah. ratings. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't, so I think we should. And then we perfect. Should yeah, but that was it. Well done. Told you I'd remember. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you came. Fucking play today. And who, who I, I want, appreciate that. Who wants to lead into this? No, I mean, we don't have to spend a super amount of time on it because it is a super minor scene. Um, I guess the big question, I would think, to help start it off, it's just, do people think that that's a real scene and that we should take it literally? No. Okay. No, and I think... I mean, I think I, in, this film's, yeah. in, the, in this film's universe, that scene happens. But oh, with, so no, that's what I'm trying to say, though. Oh. Do we think it really happened in the sense that... Is Brad Pitt remembering it that way? Mm-hmm. Or I, I think he's remembering it that way. I think he's remembering it that way. I don't think that it necessarily played out exactly like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what that's what I was asking. Was, yeah. I, I, my, I, my, 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 I don't mean is it real, like is it historically accurate? No, is I mean it, I mean my my suspicion is is that 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 actual event probably happened in this film's universe. And the actual events that transpired around it are probably manipulated somewhat. That being said, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the fact of like Brad Pitt like being able to be smart enough to get Bruce Lee to do something stupid to have him hurt himself. Basically, I wouldn't necessarily think that that's completely out of the realm of possibility. Right, I think that especially um, like knowing what you know what we do now about combat sports and that thing, like being smart is such an important part of it. And obviously, Bruce Lee was a fantastic martial artist and everything, but, but he hadn't over- made. Just so people know, culturally speaking, Bruce Lee was not Bruce Lee at this moment. I mean, right. actor, yes, he right. was, and but he was Kato in the Green Hornet, right. which is not a great thing to be. Which was he one of his breakout had, roles yeah, for that. Yeah. But he had not yet basically given up right. on Hollywood, went back home where he became a huge star and made the five films that he's ever made right. in which he was a martial arts star and then tragically died. Right. So I think people generally are forgetting the timeline yeah. and that Brad Pitt did not, in this scene at least, do any of that. I, I think that the after the, 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 the contention what? with, with the, the scene oh, with Bruce Lee is not just that he lost that lost around to 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 Cliff, but sort of the portrayal of his arrogance and the sort of portrayal of that is like there's been sort of numerous contentions. Like I I read up about this because I was curious about because honestly I don't have much of a conception of Bruce Lee aside from maybe his performance in Enter the Dragon. I need to watch more Bruce Lee films. That's what I might want to call it. So many. I know. Yeah. I was like, I need to watch more Bruce Lee films. I have all five. And well. um, yeah. like sort of his philosophy about Jeet Kune Do, which sort of um. Uh, trickled into other sort of adjacent works. Uh, probably the one that has the most sort of visibility to me is Cowboy Bebop. Like yeah. that's Spike practicing Jeet Kune Do and like basically parroting the same sort of like philosophy of that. That's how I know uh, Bruce Lee vicariously through that sort of association. But anyway, um, so there have been like biographies about uh, Bruce Lee and how sort of his 
his real life presence may be a little bit divergent from that of his on-screen presence. Maybe he was kind of arrogant. Maybe he was kind of like boisterous and stuff. Maybe that tied into the fact of him, you know, being a uh, an Asian like screen actor who had to probably work three times as hard as his daughter like talked about had time to work three times as hard as probably maybe in cliff or or rick had to and yet also in their sort of context of that give his talent away right. to other white actors right, exactly. which was both a real thing and a thing that was depicted in this movie exactly which is that he trained everybody yeah including sharon tate for the scene in the wrecking crew that right was a real event right mm. right and so i think that Striking a fine line between this, like I've 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 looked up a couple of stuff. Like there's um the the one critic that I, I stumbled upon, uh, Walter Cha, who was talking about sort of like what he liked about that depiction because it depicted him as a very sort of flawed and perfect human being, and that's sort of like part of the aspect of not just his sort of superhuman esque uh, strength or his like philosophy and stuff, but the fact that he was able to sort of like strive to it laps the, the, the divide between the lived experience and like his ideal in that sort of sense. Um, and the idea of saying that, well, is it, is it racist to, to, to insinuate that Bruce Lee could be defeated in a fight or is that inadvertently paternalistic and unrealistic and like sort of like putting him on a, on a sort of like sacred calf um, sort of uh, a platform for sort of like white idolization. And it's like, that's that I think that that is a really interesting like conception to untangle that. I think that, 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 that it merits consideration in, in the depiction of this scene. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I think everything surrounding this scene is super ambiguous. As right. We talked about multiple moments throughout this film and yeah. most Tarantino films. Uh, but my takeaway from this is actually, I, I feel like maybe I'm just, just, you know, taking it too much at face no. value, oh, yeah. but I, I just, I actually in retrospect really enjoyed how the events played out in that scene because of what you're talking about, because this idea of, of him laying out these very specific rules and us having both he and uh, um, Brad Pitt's character be one and one going into the third round of their duel or whatever, and then having it end before it's actually going to end, I thought actually was pretty thematically relevant. And at the same time, like I like the idea of, of Bruce Lee having this, this sort of I, I'm not going to say like Kurt Cobain reputation because mm -hmm. he passed on as before his before life was able yeah. to be played out but he's almost achieved legend status throughout his career because of everything surrounding that so the idea to take the piss out of that a little bit and say well yes he was this fantastic martial artist and everything but he was not a god or anything like that. Like he was still just a man. Yeah. And if anyone like like that, and I loved the aspect of earlier in that where this all comes about because he talks about he talks about fighting Muhammad Ali, and he but he, he says his name before he becomes Muhammad Ali, right? Yeah, Cassius, Cassius Clay. Because it says talks about fighting Cassius Clay, 
And which is another way, really quick, just mm-hmm. comment on that. But for him to say Cassius Clay, which is obviously makes sense, mm-hmm. but uh, is another way the movie folds history kind of back in on itself. It reminds people that history and the context in which it exists is an ever-changing thing yeah. from moment to moment. Which, right. yeah. But but I, I do love Brad Pitt's commentary there, though, before the fight even happens, of him just being like, yeah, <laughs> and that's another sort of thing that doesn't really. Like, I've I've read about that part too, and it's like Shannon Lee says, like, no, like my father would never say that about Cassius Clay. He like really respected him, like revered him. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's like so. Yeah, I well, understand why anybody who's the child of yeah, any yeah, person sure. would. Right. So I completely respect. Any perspective, of course, yeah, yeah. I don't know that it's pertinent to a movie that Tarantino makes in which right. that character is an afterthought to an alt history mm-hmm. timeline. Right, right. But I definitely understand that. Uh, I will say on the subject of that scene, that depiction doesn't change anything that I think about like Bruce Lee in general. Like, in fact, it makes Bruce... me want to learn more about him. So, no, just... I mean, I, as I was mentioning to you when we both arrived tonight, Tucson, yeah. before Nick got here, like, I feel oh, like... thanks for outing me as the latecomer. You showed up literally four minutes after I got here. So yeah. Oh! Really... Four minutes. Now we're quantifying it. <laughs> yeah, now we're quantifying it. Yes, Alex, continue. Any real-life character, whether it be for good or bad, uh, is is exactly that. They are a caricature in Tarantino films, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And uh, two things I'll say about that scene in general, which is that, one, what Cliff does to Bruce Lee in that scene is slightly reminiscent of what... Rick will do to the man tonight, which is somehow because he happens to be this fictional composite in the middle of an alt history Hollywood. It's meant to prime us for his capacity of violence. Yeah, well, I was going to say besides that, but even though that's also true, and I didn't even think about that, but he also is technically coaxing history to come out of its shell of what we know it to be and, and step into this other limelight of a twisted funhouse mirror version of it. And and it's only done via these two characters who never existed. And, and I think that's a little micro version of what's happening in there where the macro version certainly comes at the end of the movie. And um, the other thing about that scene that just as at least why it works for me is that I – no, you know what? I don't think I remember my second point. Oh, sorry, man. God bless, bless everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so going into final ratings, I Bam. think, is, is where we should should end this on here. Yeah. I think we've uh, hit on most aspects of this film. Yeah. And I'll start off. Um, I give this a three and a half. It's, it's kind of in the middle of the Tarantino collection for myself. Definitely not at the high end, but also, you know, not something I, I like this more than I like like Jackie Brown. I like it more than The Hateful Eight. It's fine. Your two favorites, Nick, but that's okay. We're on different wavelengths, and that's totally fine. Two different Tarantino fans. I was going to say, yeah, well, two different film fans. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, this is a really wonderful film uh, and a, a well-done piece of filmmaking by Tarantino. I feel like... This actually is, and and you kind of were uh, alluding to this earlier, Nick, but this is like showing 
actual growth about him as a filmmaker, which I feel like you could have easily just pointed to certain parts of every single other film he's made and just say, look at this fucking guy. Uh, but at the same time, like, I think he's really shown a true passion in this film and not that he has in other ones, but I mean, he's come a long way from showing like rapes and racism and shit like that. This is a distinctly less provocative film. It yeah, doesn't right. mean that there's not yeah. moments of provocative, but even those come at the expense of people we're already primed to hate. Given the extremity, of the the extremes of the core subject matter at play here, I think that is way more... Which means he had to work overtime right. to not do what he normally does. Right, so. yeah. So that was... That, that's why I mean where it's so surprisingly tasteful with regard to how it handles that subject matter. And just, I feel like that then trickles out to most of the film as a whole, not just the handling of that principal subject matter. Like, yeah. Which is, he may have gotten his rocks off with the original announcement that's going to be, that I think probably elicited the exact reaction he would go for out of somebody like yourself, Tucson, which would have been like, I'm going to make a Manson family movie and I'm going to release it on Sharon Tate's murder date and be like, the fuck you are! And he's like, ha ah. uh, so well, He this, would pull that shit. This he is would the, say that exact same shit. <laughs> this is the same director who got fucking furious, for understandable reasons, when the Hateful Eight script got leaked to yeah. the point where it's been reported. We don't. I don't think there's ever been true confirmation that he essentially rewrote the ending in some way or oh, not. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Right. And so I think what you just said as far as basically like, well, why don't I drop this and... We'll see how people react. And then he's like, oh, that's what people expect me to do? Well, you know what? Fuck them. Yeah. I, I could see that well, being I, a, at I, least I a could, driving force. I could see that, and I could see it being also what I just mentioned of him saying, I'm going to do a somewhat different film, but at the same time, this is what I get out of making films, so I'm going to send these humans into this ridiculous, nonsensical obsession here over this, which, not saying that what you're feeling was nonsensical, Tucson, but... No. Nothing had happened regarding this film yet, other than a potential announcement that was made about it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, that being said, this is a really solid film that I'm, I'm interested to watch again. And we just talked about that on the Midsummer episode. This is a film that I'm eager to go back and rewatch, uh, and I'm in the same exact boat here. And, and Tarantino is is in the same boat as someone like Martin Scorsese for me, where I've got to the point where he could make anything, and I'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. It's a movie about. Something really stupid, I'm going to go see it. Like, I I already made that mistake one time in my life where I said, holy shit, this Django Unchained trailer looks like the dumbest shit I've ever seen. And I went and saw it. I was like, oh, that's one of my 50 favorite films of all time. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, this yeah. fucking guy just knows what he's doing. Yep. yep. So, yeah, he, he made a really good film here. We got great performances. He got some great characters here. Uh, Brad Pitt's character of, it's Cliff Booth. Cliff Booth. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a fantastic character. I mean, it's not in the Tarantino pantheon of greatest characters he's created, in my opinion. Like, it's not up there with like Stuntman Mike or um, John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction or anything like that. But at the same time, uh, it is a fantastic character and a fabulous performance by Brad Pitt as well. And then Leonardo DiCaprio, obviously, and also Margot Robbie. Um, both giving great performances in obviously much different capacities uh, here. So the whole package is actually really strong. And I think it is quite interesting. And I'll just end it with this. 
saying that I give this a three and a half out of five. And I think this is interesting because I think this is everything that I thought it would be. Well, something totally different. And I think that that is one of the great things about Quentin Tarantino is he makes films that are everything you expect them to be, but they are different than you thought they were going to be at the same time. Like he delivers this film where I said, it's going to be about the Manson family. Like he's saying it's not, but it's fucking going to be. And it absolutely was. But obviously he delivers it in a different package. There's so much more going on in the background here. And obviously has a super revisionist history uh, aspect of how this film plays out. And that is one of Tarantino's absolute best strengths is he delivers exactly on what your preconceived notion is, but it is something totally unique uh, to what he wants to create as a film. And he is a obviously fabulous filmmaker and delivered yet a another great movie for us here in once upon a time in Hollywood. So again, three and a half out of five for me. Yeah. So I've seen this film twice um, and I gave it the same initial rating um, the second time as I did the third time. I mean, the second time as I did the first time. And I feel as though my rating for the film has overall improved and grown from that initial rating, which I'm very surprised about. And I guess it's just because I've just been uh, ruminating on on the film, its themes, on a lot of its depictions, its characters. And I'm of two minds of giving it this rating, but I feel as though I'm just going to rate it as I feel about it right in this moment, just because I feel I'm just going to throw it at the board and reason it out later. I'm going to give this a four out of five because I really do enjoy this film. And I'm looking forward to taking more time to sort of like parse out why that is. I'm looking forward to like watching on a home video when it eventually does come out again. Um, yeah, this is a, a really great movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So The Hateful Eight ended with a black man and a white man coming together to hang a woman. So Yeah, I remember. They're common sense of justice could be realized. And if that movie, in my opinion, uh, ironically portrayed where we are in the nation, I think this movie uh, suggests what we could be if history went the right way. And I think that that's what's beautiful about this film. I think it both doesn't pretend that there's nothing good about the past because it is so enamored with... Uh, artifacts from you know this era and from uh, media fr- that's from a bygone era, but it suggests that it only came about because it was the precursor to some very dark times for Hollywood and for America as a whole, and that what if at the end of the day the potential and the promise of a woman was actually a story worth more uh, than whatever fucking Charlie Manson was trying to spout off and and what his acolytes thought was in any way and, genius. And, and also, too, mostly women who were his followers, too, at true. the same time. So, yeah. yeah. And, and for Tarantino to actually follow through with that and, and, and to stick to that and write a movie, I think, is 
gorgeous that this is. It, it This is never going to be one of my all-time favorite films, but there's nothing about this that is not lockstep in sync with me and what I... What I'm already enamored with uh, when it comes to movies and television, and um, I just think it's beautiful. I think performances across the board are fantastic, and Brad Pitt's role as uh, Cliff Booth is going to stick with me all year, mm. and um, I'm, I just cannot wait to rewatch it and parse it again. So mm-hmm. it's four and a half out of five for mm. me. It's, I think it's fantastic, and it once again continues the Tarantino discourse. And even if that's not a hell I want to live in, <laughs> um, the fact that it's still able to do it, and it's still able to get me to come out and want to be in that discourse, despite the fact how fucking unbearable it can be at times. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, I think, the power of Tarantino, who's not the greatest filmmaker ever, you know, that's ever been, mm. but... There's Maybe. something compelling, at least about his his uh, his films, the approach that he takes to his subject matter. He's, that he, absolutely, he's somehow become a mainstream. That's another thing. Director who's I mean, doing things that mainstream people are not doing. When I saw this movie, I saw it in a sold out movie yep. theater, and it wasn't day one, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty good. He did and, he, he did forty million on opening weekend. Yeah, this is yeah. his best opening weekend uh, on an on a hard R rated film, and yeah. for a movie yeah. as weird and as mm-hmm. muted and as violent and. And violent in a way where, like, Django is a more violent movie, mm-hmm. but that's a bloodthirsty movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, when the fireplace scene happens in this movie, my mother, I saw it with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Both of them enjoy this movie a lot. And my mother abhors violence in film, not, like, on a moral end, but she just right. can't watch it. She, right, right. You know, she gets all whatever. Yeah. And so when that the whole thing happened. She like told me afterwards that she felt so sick to her stomach before it started because she just the image of Margot Robbie uh, emerging from the house now pregnant. That, that's also I, I talked earlier about the scene on the ranch, but everything building up to the Margot, even if it was never going to happen, just yeah. the suspense. Oh no! I mean, right. it's, it's playing with the audience knowing sure. that that's a the reality. Events. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so my mom was eating it up apparently even though it was making her sick to her stomach because she's like it just like I was not ready for the ending because I never wanted it to come and then it did and it certainly wasn't what we expected and even though she closed her eyes a few times because she does not go in for most violence let alone that fucking fireplace scene um, even she was like watching through closed fingers because the barrier of who this was happening to and and, yeah. the, and the way it came about was kind of cathartic right. yep. in a pretty powerful way, I thought. Yeah. So, uh, so to wrap it up for me, at least, uh, four and a half out of five, I think it is such a wonderful thing that we have this movie out in, in general audiences and that they're actually eating it up and that it would still actually spark a conversation, I think, as long and yet as eventful as something like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's just uh, another example of Tarantino being one of the absolute great directors of this generation. Uh, whether whether or not you like his brand or don't, I mean, the, he's just doing good work and people are going and seeing it. So. So, uh, we said we were not going to do superhero movies for a while, and that shit's just getting broken on the first one that comes God out. And I think damn we even it. explicitly said we weren't going to do Spider-Man. 
which is totally fine that we're going to do it because yeah. we have a great reason to do I it. I was going to say. But I just meant it's just very ironic that we cannot no. not. Containers. We can't yeah. get away from this shit. So there are two things about the upcoming episode. First, uh, we are not necessarily deciding on our own accord to do the episode on <laughs> Spider-Man. We're being held at gunpoint. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, our friend Christina, uh, who is a huge Spider-Man fan, mm-hmm. uh, comics and film-wise, uh, who we did the last Spider-Man film, did an episode on. Uh, 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 she is... Asked if we'd be interested in getting together and doing an episode. It's been a while since we've seen Christina. It has I been. Say. Yeah, okay. been uh, yeah. two and was half, the Spider-Man ago? episode the last thing we did with Yeah, we've her? only done one episode with her, and yeah. it was that. We've so. only done one episode mm-hmm. with her? Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. I thought we did an X-Men. No, we did an X-Men one. We did an X-Men Apocalypse. Well, maybe it was just that. Maybe we didn't do Spider-Man then. Oh. Or we did two of them. I, I, uh, it's, it's, it's not Time super is a flat clear circle. Mind, I bet if we asked Christina, she would remember. Oh, she would. We should do that. Yeah. Or she wouldn't, and that'd be even sadder. <laughs> yeah. it, it either, at any rate, she's a big Spider-Man fan, oh, yeah. uh, and um, was asking us if we were interested in doing an episode on it, and um, we're, we're pretty easy to, yeah, to say, say yes to. We were like, uh, yeah, we were planning on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it will also give us a chance uh, on next week's episode to discuss some of the Marvel plans for their upcoming fourth phase, and even if we don't want to get super in detail about it, uh, it's pretty clear that even if it's a little contrived, uh, it's 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 going to be uh, different than some of their earlier offerings. So uh, we'll hit on all that and also talk about Far From Home coming up on episode 199. Ooh. <laughs> little kid. That's great. All right. So also, before we uh, step out of here, uh, just always a reminder to check out all of our episodes on FilmTankShow.com. Uh, also, you can find our episodes on either Apple Podcasts or also uh, on Stitcher. We still can't make it through without referencing the iTunes thing. Yeah, you just did it. You giggled. Yeah. I giggled. Yeah, I thought I it, but time. I didn't say anything. And I'm very proud of you that you made it as far as you did. I, I it's, it's his fault. I know. I, I, know, I know. I know. Sorry I'm, that I'm full of piss and vinegar. life. Yeah, <laughs> you so many ways could have went there. Yeah. So we Young, are dumb, Apple. and full of some lasagna, maybe? Yeah. Uh, really quickly, I want to give a shout-out to okay. a podcast app that I just discovered today. Okay. Which is... Sponsored Cast- content. Oh, my. What? Well, now you just ruined it. Now I don't want to say what it is. No, we. this is not sponsored content. This is a genuine endorsement because hmm. I was quite taken with it. But the podcast app Castro, which is available across platform, you can get on Android or Apple, uh, is probably going to be my new mainstay for listening and subscribing to podcasts. One of my favorite features, and I think I'm going to start utilizing it on our social media feed, is that you can very easily in-app cut clips from a episode and share it. So I thought that was a really cool. And... Film Tank is in the directory for Castro. So, All right. Which we already were, so I don't know where they were pulling it from, but <laughs> I did not have to do anything for that. So anyway, and apparently we're probably going to be on Spotify soon. Cause oh, I, cool. I just submitted to them. Uh, I submitted to a bunch of directories earlier. I think I told you that. But yeah, uh, yeah. So Film Tank might be popping up, and we might podcast. be promoting all kinds of different places on the next episode. We'll see. But for now. Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and FilmTankShow.com. Also, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. 
So, look forward to talking to everybody on the Far From Home episode coming up on 199. But until then, thank you very much to Nick Cheney, to Son Egan, and from those two gentlemen and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much to the audience for listening to us here on Film Tank. We'll see you next time. <laughs>